This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Monday to you. Hope you've had a great weekend. Um, you know, I did. Not to brag. But starting a new week. It's it's always, uh, you know, you got to buckle down. You got to focus. Joining me is one who is all buckled up uh, in a straitjacket, Jeff Simpson. It's interesting you mentioned starting the week strong because I had this idea that I was going to wake up super early this morning, exercise, oh, really? and just start off by doing something hard for yeah. the week. How'd that work? <sighs> it uh, it didn't really work out. Where did you get that idea? Well, it's something that I've tried a number of times, and a number of times I've done quite well with it. But today, I just wasn't feeling it. But you're trying to wake up. You already wake up really early. So you're going to try to wake up even earlier and exercise. Wow. Why don't you just exercise on your after your after work today? Well, because then I go home and I do more work. I mean, like on your way home. Go stop like, by a gym or a park or wherever you exercise. Uh, put on that spandex that you wear that we don't allow you in the building mm-hmm. to wear. And uh, go go exercise. Maybe I will. And then I'll uh, keep getting a little bit of extra sleep each day. Yeah. I was going to do that sleep challenge through BYU uh, Broadcasting. Right. Actually, BYU. And uh, But then I decided not to because... You've got to be a full-time benefited employee to get the incentives. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. But I am going to try to get at least seven hours of sleep this week. I'll race you. And I think you are going to notice a difference. What do you think? Do you think you'll push the buttons in a more crisp way? Mm-hmm. Push my buttons? You always push my buttons, but you never – they're not crisp how you push them. They're kind of – you're always a little delayed. Yeah. Wrong. Just like that. Uh, well, we, we wish you the best with that. Um, and I'll be asking you every day then how your sleep is coming. Except that might get a little boring for the listeners. What? Um, anyway, we got a lot to talk about today. We're going to be talking about how to talk with your anxious child in a way that you don't make them more anxious. My child is becoming very anxious. For some reason, she is worried about first grade. Really? How She's not even she? finished with kindergarten yet. Wow. But that's kind of normal, right? They they always thinking ahead, well, maybe worrying going, about the next stage. I remember being maybe a little nervous going back to school, but never like during the previous grade, I don't think. Oh, really? You don't – like you didn't – when you were in eighth grade, you didn't worry about high school? No, I couldn't wait to get out of junior high. Oh, really? Well, yeah, yeah. because of the bullies. <laughs> um. Oh, well, well, man, tell tell your wife to listen up. This is going to be a, an excellent talk today or an excellent guest today. Uh, Lynn Lyons will be joining us. So we'll be getting into that. Many, too, by the way, uh, just a lot of interesting stories over the weekend. A helicopter crash it kills at least uh, more than two in New York. Um, their helicopter went down in the East River. And there's a video of this helicopter with engine failure just slowly landing and kind of landing in the water, and five people ended up dying in this crash. The only one that survived was the pilot. So were the the people that died, were they in the helicopter? Yeah. Or were they people underneath, around? No, it, was, it landed in. in the water. Wow. And then 
it kind of rolled over and tipped over underwater, and only the pilot was able to get out of the of the helicopter. <sighs> it was just. And it's hard because you can watch the video. That and then helicopter or airplane crashes lately. A lot of interesting uh, uh, news that way. And so, which weird. And then I was on an airplane, so that always makes it. Uh, flying with my wife is a very interesting thing because it doesn't matter what the sound is when it's at thirty thousand feet or fifteen thousand feet when you're landing. It starts to make her very nervous. They open the the. Uh, the landing gear door, and she kind of grabs on. I wonder what the protocol is in a helicopter. Like what sort of pre-flight uh, safety well, thing yeah, that do they do? do? And what do you do? Helicopter, let's just say you could, because they were close enough to the water. I mean, you know, if you could have, you would have jumped out, but you got a blade above you. Yeah. It's just, it's crazy. There's a lot of, there's just a lot of. You know, difficult tragedy in this world that uh, we watch. And I wonder if that's not one of the things that leads to so much more anxiety because we, we see the story. We see every story. We used to not hear of every every helicopter crash. Now you can. And go watch it. And it's crazy what we have to put and go through and put our even our put our kids through. So let's be careful of uh, not overstimulating our kids with all of this information. Let's also, while we're at it, uh, Terry joined us. We we're honored to have you you with us again, Terry. I appreciate being you, back. Thank uh, you, you. You got so he's much... playing Fortnite. Yeah, not yet. He's probably trying to figure out how to download it because it, it's coming out. Is <laughs> that, it today? That'll be in a minute. I heard they have the the. Apple iPhone version of the game, so we'll oh, see. Oh boy, that's and if I can play it before the end of the game, I will report. Okay, let's uh, let's get to the headlines, Terry. What else should we be uh, worried about? Uh, President Trump considering adding a prominent impeachment lawyer to his team to help deal with the special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia probe. The New York Times reports no decision has been made on the matter, but the lawyer Emmett T. Flood, ah. Emmett. T. Flood. Emmett T. Flood. Was that an yeah. old Looney Tunes character? I was, I was questioning. But uh, he has met with Trump in recent days to discuss the possibility of working for the White House, according to sources cited in the report. Flood, who currently works at Williams and Connolly, previously represented Bill Clinton during the impeachment process. If he joins the Trump team, he would assist the president in dealing with the Justice Department's requests related to the Russia investigation. He previously turned down an offer to represent Trump, but has long been on the president's list of candidates to join his legal team. Oh, boy. Some part of this was deemed fake news by the president on Twitter over the weekend. Not sure. He says he's happy with his legal team, and then he named them all. Interesting. But so this so, has, I don't know. So it's not the president saying, hey, I could get impeached. It's just saying, I really want Mr. Emmett T. Flood, Flood yeah. to be on my team. And yeah. he did meet with him, but they he didn't hire him. Allegedly. Okay. That we know of. All right. That has been reported. Yeah. Approximately 76% of gun owners who are not members of the NRA said they support raising the minimum age for buying a high-capacity semi-automatic rifle like an AR-15 from 18 to 21. This according to a BuzzFeed report. That proposal even has substantial backing among gun-owning NRA members at 53%. Huh. with only 25% strongly opposed. But while raising the legal age for ownership for all firearms from 18 to 21 has support from 64% of gun owners who aren't NRA members, just 40% of NRA member gun owners would back such a, a plan. There's also a significant split on support for banning the AR-15 nationwide. 45% of gun owners who aren't NRA members support the ban, 
compared to only 24% of gun owners who are members. Hmm. So there's kind of a split when it yeah. comes to are you in the NRA or are you out of the NRA and what your opinions are. Well, there. there's probably people that are so deep in the NRA and some that really don't care about the NRA. Right. I mean, that love guns. Sure. You know, it's just some aren't into that. Some just want to shoot their guns. Why why'd join a club when you can just shoot a gun? That's right. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, the Pentagon memo sent to Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was issued on Thursday, outlining the initial guidance on how Trump sought after a uh, parade scheduled for November 11th, Veterans Day. We'll look. The memo says the parade will integrate with the annual D.C. Veterans Day parade and focus on the c- contributions of U.S. veterans from the Revolutionary War to today with an emphasis on the price of freedom. The parade will include wheeled vehicles only. No tanks. No tanks. The memo adding that consideration must be given to minimize damage to local infrastructure. Okay, good. We can't tear up the roads with the tanks because we want to have tanks. So, so thank you very much. Sorry. We, we, yeah. Dad we will have a Veterans Day parade. Right. Tankless. A tankless parade. It's always tankless. Has to be tankless. Every mother knows what it's like to have tankless people. <laughs> um, so Dad joke. that's kind of a boring parade then. Will we have long trucks with missiles on it? Uh, don't know. Confetti. If- we'll have personnel carriers with soldiers tossing you know, that really bad taffy that they oh, sell. Oh, yeah. Take an eye out with Just some taffy. Chuck candy at the kids. I mean, honestly, that is what this should be about, right? This should right. be about thousands of soldiers, you know, on the parade route, 100,000 people watching, celebrating all of our soldiers. Yes. That's what it should be about. Not about rolling tanks and yeah. missiles like, you know, And Russia. then the most incredible fireworks display ever. Right. Yeah. That's what we need. Or, as other people are saying, how much money? Well, at what point does it get too much? Is it too expensive, too unreasonable to have a parade? What price tag? I mean, we, we had a parade, They're saying right? like 20 to $30 million is what they're looking at. The, the president just had a parade a year and a half ago. He a did. year ago. He did. Yeah, we don't. Maybe. Maybe he was concerned about the seats that were available during the parade. I'm not even a parade guy. No, you're not. Why is he wanting so many parades? He went to France and he saw their parade and he goes, wow, that's pretty cool. Look at their tanks rolling down the road. The French, okay, they're known for their toast, Mm. their fries, the Eiffel Tower, and their military parades. What about the dressing? Oh, and the dressing. I forgot. (laughs) I forgot about the French. Not sure if any of those are actually French. Yeah, sadly. If you ask for French dressing, do they give you a confused look in Paris? What are you oui. talking about? We. Oui. Do they have something called American dressing? Is that just ranch? No, it's just a really loud, bombastic <clears throat> dressing. <laughs> That's all they know. Finally, an out-of-control Chinese space station with highly toxic chemicals on board that is currently hurtling towards the Earth may crash to lower Michigan. It has been revealed. Remember we talked about yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. They have the space station. It was a prototype... It's up there. Now it's decaying in orbit, and it's going to crash back into the Earth somewhere. They've been trying to figure out where. The problem is it's moving fast in a circular orbit, and the Earth is moving at this, you know, similar speed. And yeah, once you hit the Earth and you start bumping into the atmosphere, you yeah, slow no. down, you speed up, oh, stuff yeah. starts breaking out. Where do you land? Nobody knows. They kind of have an idea about where around the planet. Longitude, right? Yeah. But... They're not sure exactly where because it's hard to, you know, figure these things out. I mean, this is, let's be very clear. This is a ball of hot metal. Yes. At the, at the point where it hits, yeah, it'll be a ball of hot metal. And 
it could hit any one of us. It could. That's scary. Now, this is the Daily Mail. So they're trying to get people in America to click on this story. Yeah. So they go, lower Michigan. And I went, ooh. What? Michigan, they know. And then you read it. And it says, it is believed China's first prototype station will come crashing back to the planet around April 3rd. Experts say U.S. research organization uh, Aerospace Corporation revealed that parts of lower uh, southern lower Michigan are among the regions that have the highest probability of being hit by the falling debris, while a precise landing location remains unclear. They uh, provided the latitudes between which the space station is likely to land. The countries at risk include, are you ready? Yes. Spain, Italy, Turkey, India, and parts of the U.S., Northern China, Central Italy, Northern Spain, Middle East, uh, New Zealand, Tasmania, South America, South Africa, and northern oh. states in the U.S. have been identified as regions with higher chances. Oh, okay. But so agencies, anywhere. <laughs> basically half the planet. Oh, my they, they still don't know. They just wanted you to click on the story. But agencies will know the precise date the station will impact and exactly where the debris will fall during the final weeks of its decline. Then do they then send out a warning like, "Hey, maybe just complimentary helmets." Eastern Michigan, here's some hard hats. I mean, that's just scary. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't be so worried. Well, I think again. I mean, last hour I had the story about uh, what disease X or whatever they're calling yeah. it, and they don't have a name. They don't know what it is. They're just uh, the WHO has a nice little who, pl- who? has a placeholder for <laughs> a proposed disease. Yeah. That may or may not actually cause a huge problem. Likewise, these guys put out the information, and it's like, eh, half the planet could get hit. Don't worry about it. You're fine. Everyone on the, I mean, there's like millions of people they just named in I these mean, countries that are now in the path of this, but eh, we don't know. It could land in the ocean. It could land in the middle of a football game. It's in April. could land in the middle of, of a March Madness. Well, uh, could, but, I mean, we're indoors. Gonna, we're going to be fine. This isn't the way I go. I know that at least. Oh, wow. Wow, look at you. Look how bold you are. How are you going, by the uh, way? I th- it involves a plate of nachos is all I can say. That's a good way to go. Yeah. Hey, by the way, I was talking to someone over the weekend, and they again said, man, that other guy on your show, Jeff, sure sounds like you. Really? So they- Was this my, my uh, mission president no. that you didn't mention – I was on the I show. I did not know. I had lunch <laughs> with Jeff's past mission president, and I did not know that he was your mission president. <sighs> you spent two I'm years with sure him in I Russia. Told you. I don't think you told me. I don't think you did. I don't. I don't remember that part. Or maybe I wasn't listening. But um, one That's of the, the things, more likely scenario. One of the things that I think um, we ought to do, just so the listeners aren't confused. By who's speaking. So right now, Matt Townsend speaking. Jeff, let's hear your voice. This is Jeff Simpson speaking. I don't see I don't see what the the confusion is all about. Here's I don't what think I, want I you sound to do. like you at all. Can you just for a minute for me do the mad hatter voice? The mad hatter voice? Yeah. Can't you do it? No. So you think that will be the thing that differentiates our voices? Yes. And if I can I'll be my voice. Okay. And you be the mad hatter voice. Which would sound like what? Oh, I, I don't understand all this confusion. I don't sound in the least like Matt Townsend. <laughs> okay, that's it. So from here on out, <laughs> yeah. I will be this voice, 
and Jeff will be, well, coming up next on MT News, <laughs> we've got some funny, silly stories. Yes. Okay. So we will – let's do the rest of the show this way. <laughs> Can you do MT News with that voice? No, let's not. So I, I, really, I really feel like people would be more okay with us sounding alike no, than people are like, me I can't doing tell the, difference. the Mad Hatter for three hours. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, well, what we'll do is we'll get two or three personalities. Um, let's let's do a little empty news. Have you got a little empty news for us? Just do it in the old-fashioned Jeff voice. Okay. A.K.A. the Matt Townsend voice? Yeah. So this one is interesting, and I'm going to play a little music to go along with this because I think it uh, is very fitting. Yeah. Um, don't you hate it? I'm not doing a Jerry Seinfeld impression. Just on the keyboard, <laughs> or, yeah, just playing the keys as, while he's talking. So you get the bill to like your your uh, to the water the water bill, right? And it's just way too high. And most of the time, they've just made a mistake, yeah. right? There's some leak somewhere, or the the meter reader has come by and they've read it wrong. No, this woman got a nearly $500 water bill, and she what? in her I, in her mind she thought that was a little excessive. This water bill is a little too high, so I'm going to send these yeah. water people a message. Yeah. So she went to her jar of pennies oh, no. and paid for her bill that was $493 entirely with In pennies. pennies. Yeah. Did they accept it? Because sometimes they, they won't accept that. They did. They took it back to be counted, and it took more than two hours to count the pennies. Oh, boy. So would that be enough for you, if you were a decision maker, would that be enough for you to start making some changes? Maybe this is a little too high. Yeah. You think so? Well, or maybe what you do is you just start making a rule where we don't accept change. I'm surprised. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't say we don't accept change or I'm surprised they didn't say you take these home, you roll them up and bring them back. We'll take them gladly. Yeah. 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 All pennies must be rolled. Yeah. Right. Isn't this such a cute... It's a great song. rendition of Penny. Pennies from Heaven. Yeah. I thought that was your new voice. I thought you were doing a new voice for me. No, that's not me. Um, okay. How, have you ever had the desire to own a drone? No, but I do want a Porsche Carrera. Really? I drove one and I want to. I drove one this weekend. Okay. So that's my new thing. I don't want a drone. I don't want. And I want a Porsche Carrera. So any anytime you have like a kite. Or a ball. Yeah. A lot of your frustrations as a kid were trying to get these things out of a tree, yeah, right? off the roof. Now, what happens as an adult, you don't, you're not playing with kites, you're not playing with those balls anymore, but you are playing with drones, and yeah. they tend to get stuck up in trees as well. There's a Tennessee drone pilot who tried to rescue his aircraft when it got stuck at the top of a tree in a local park Saturday evening. He had to be rescued from the tree himself oh, no. when he got stuck about 40 feet up. Come on. I guess he didn't have like a 40-foot pole or something, uh, so he started climbing. Uh, he, he luckily had his phone in his pocket at the time. He called emergency dispatch from about 40 feet up. I wonder what the reception was like up there. <laughs> uh, to report that he'd climbed about halfway to the top and couldn't get back down. 
That is a tall tree. That is a tall tree. He's 40 feet up, didn't even get all the way up there. Trees are probably the drone's greatest nemesis. The first firefighters on the scene determined that a ladder truck was needed to get the drone pilot down. The ladder truck arrived at 8.18 p.m. That's only 18 minutes after he called them. That's a good time. that's a great time. And the man was on the ground by 8.40. Well, so, so what's the lesson here? The lesson is think before you climb. Think before you climb. I mean, I always think that way. Can I get down if I get up? Hmm. I learned that as a very young kid. I had one of my children that uh, got in trouble with the police mm-hmm. because his friends had climbed a pole and got they, they all got onto an elementary school. But my son got in trouble, but he never climbed the pole because he knew if he climbed up the pole, he'd never be able to get down the pole. <laughs> so he um, – Anyway, he still got in trouble, but I was... That was the worst. I was proud of him. I I was proud of him. I got in trouble for several things when I was growing up that I didn't do. Well, but yeah, you did. You're still just denying it. Do I look suspicious? Do I sound suspicious? And if I sound suspicious, I think in turn that means that you sound suspicious. That's a great point. Yeah. Uh, if you if you were going to go back to the questions you asked me, do you look suspicious? Yes. Is do it you because sound the... suspicious? Yes, when mm. you do the mad hatter. Um is it the red ring around my eyelids yeah. that makes me look suspicious? Mm-hmm. It's that it's that red eyeliner you're wearing. Mm. Also known as dry skin. So we had uh, not really a similar situation, but we were at a park and we were fly- we were throwing a frisbee or something that got stuck up in a tree. So my brother started to climb it to go retrieve it. Yeah. And a cop pulls up to the tree, just oh, like pulls boy. his car right up to the tree. And apparently there was somebody that they were chasing that was uh, on the loose. And they thought that my brother was the guy climbing up into the tree in the middle of the day. Did they in- chase him? <laughs> They didn't tase him, did they? That would have been interesting. I probably would have been okay with that at the time because my brother left. and I didn't always get along yeah. growing up. Well, you, or weren't you the one that you were the one that called the cops? <laughs> yeah, we understand. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about how to talk with your child to uh, to minimize their anxiety. If they're an anxious child, there might be some techniques that we can use as parents to talk them out of the tree. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, more and more we see anxiety and uh, anxious children, anxious people. It's a, it's a, it's almost an epidemic, right? Sweeping across the country, it creates difficulty and worry for many people who struggle with it. In the media-driven world, more and more children are falling prey to it as well. But there is a way to combat this problem, and here to talk about it is Lynn Lyons, who's a trained psychotherapist and has spent the last 30 years helping adults and especially children overcome their disorder. She joins us now. Lynn, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Talk about anxiety. What is going on where we see more and more of it happening or or being identified or even diagnosed today? Yeah, so whether or not more and more of it is being diagnosed is 
a little bit hard to get the information on. And, uh, the World Health Organization, for example, tracks depression like crazy. They know the statistics around the world and how many kids and how many adults and what age groups. Anxiety, the information is a little more difficult to find. I think the pervasive sense, particularly in this country, is that anxious kids are on the rise and because I tend to see things through a family lens, I also see a lot of anxious parenting, which was really sort of the way that I, the way that I go after this, the way mm. that I approach it with the people that I work with. So you see some of the anxiousness um, is really about anxious parenting. It's how, we, it's how we go about raising our kids. Well, so we know that there is some genetic push for certain anxiety disorders and that because of certain temperaments or because of uh, certain uh, things going on, perhaps genetically, although all of this is, you know, things that we're researching at this point, um, that there is, there is a genetic push. However, we know that anxiety is generational. We know that it runs in families. And the research is pretty clear that if you are an anxious parent, there are things that you can do that make the problem worse, and then, of course, the flip side of the coin is there are things you can do to make the problem better. Mm. So just because you're an anxious parent, just because you were raised in an anxious family, doesn't mean that you're going to have an anxious child, but it means that you really be, have to be on your game in order to make sure that this isn't continually passed down from one generation to another. Yeah. Uh, in your book, Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents, um, I know you address a lot of this. What what are we, I guess, first we have to, and I've had a lot of clients that just barely are recognizing, they've never really sensed that they had anxiety, but they, yeah. as they look back on it, they think, oh, I guess I did. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty, you know, I work with, I work with kids. I see adults too, but I work a, a lot with kids. And one of the things, I, I actually don't see kids alone. Um, I only work with kids when I'm working with their parents as well, when at all possible. Mm. Um, and most of the time with the families that I see, this idea of anxiety really isn't a big mystery. People don't say, gosh, I didn't know that I had anxiety. With obsessive-compulsive disorder with kids, that gets actually misdiagnosed and mistreated a lot. But most of the time, and maybe it's just because there's increased awareness about this, but most of the time, when a kid is really a worrier, when a kid is really anxious, it's being identified for what it is, luckily, pretty early in a lot of cases. Yeah. What are some what are what's what advice do you give us as parents? What are some of the the tools that you teach to make sure that we're not transferring our anxiety onto our children? Well, one of the huge things that that is pretty clear from a lot of research is that the way that a parent models handling difficult situations, the way that a parent expresses their own fears about the world, the way that a parent allows a child independence, allows a child to deal with uncomfortable situations, has a huge impact on whether or not that child will be anxious. So expressing your own fears in front of your child, modeling worried behavior. So, so when parents say to me, you know, gosh, I'm just so stressed out all the time, and I, I worry a lot about my kids getting hurt, or I worry a lot about my kids getting sick, that's something that we know is the, is the behavior, the modeling that can really support anxiety and worry in a child. So I see that in my office. You know, parents, parents will come in, and they're 
on the kid, you know, like, oh, be careful. Oh, watch that. Oh, sit. Oh, no, don't do that. Oh, here, make sure mm. you drink your water. Oh, stay hydrated. Oh, blah, blah. And it's this constant, what I call safety chatter. And, and the, the closer that we hold our kids in this sort of anxious state, it's sort of, you know, we, we, we really got them on a short leash and we're so worried about what's going to happen to them, the much more likely they're going to develop anxiety as a child and then as they move forward in life. That's amazing. And you, you can see it. I mean, just the point you made about um, if, you know, if you're worried, say you're worried. I mean, it's almost like sometimes some of us feel like it's not macho to worry. So we tell our mm-hmm. kids that you shouldn't worry. I never feel worry or anxious about something. But in reality, it's good for them to know that things are scary and we overcome them. Right. So it's about problem solving, really. When we, when we look at the kids that are really anxious, when we look at kids that come particularly from worried families, there are, there are a few things that stand out. One is that these families have a really hard time tolerating uncertainty. And so if you have a hard time tolerating uncertainty, well, then what you'll step in to do is to create certainty. So this means that you're going over plans a lot, that you're making sure your child knows exactly what's going to happen, that, you know, and this happens in schools, too. So this child has a difficult time moving into a new classroom, so we're going to make sure that they have all the information ahead of time. It's not a, it's not a matter of abandoning planning, but it's really the over-planning and the over-talking and the over-reassuring that are real patterns in, in anxious families. So one of the things that you know, I say to parents all the time is that, just as you said, of course you're going to have worry. Of course you're not going to know exactly what's going to happen. And we need to roll around in the mites and maybes of life. You know, so a little kid is, is starting class or a, a teenager is starting high school and they say, well, what if, you know, what if I hate my math teacher? Or what if I go to get my driver's license and I fail the test? Or what if nobody likes me? Instead of saying, oh, no, it'll be fine. Or, oh, let me make sure you have the math teacher that we know is nice. Or let's make sure we, we rearrange your world so that worry doesn't show up. What we really want to say to kids is, you know, that could happen. It doesn't, some, some teachers are friendlier than others, or you make a connection with some kids more than you make with others. Mm. Let's talk about what happens when things don't go the way that we expect. Mm. And so being able to tolerate unexpected things, that's being a good problem solver. You, Is... know, so you, you, you can have all the best plans in the world, and things can go awry. How do we, how do we create kids that feel equipped to manage things when they don't go the way that we expect. Yeah. And that's the opposite of worried families. That's so interesting. So and, and so instead of upping control, it's mm-hmm. almost just ma- managing, you know, your response. Correct. Yeah. And when you up control and when you when you increase reassurance, everything will be fine. You know, I'll, let's make sure that we stay in contact by text. I'm going to text you all the time. You know, when I leave, when I leave the movies at 9 o'clock, I'll text you when I leave so you know that I'll be home by 9.15. Uh. All of that in the short term reduces worry a little bit. But, but the, the, the problem is, is that worry just keeps demanding more and more and more certainty and it's impossible to give it what it demands. So what I say to families is let's not do the disorder. 
And if anxiety demands certainty, it demands to know everything, it demands that we feel comfortable all the time, if you are trying to meet its demands in your parenting and with your children, you're actually creating a stronger anxiety disorder. You're not diminishing it. And it's a little counterintuitive, but that's something that's really important for parents to understand. Mm. Anxiety and depression tends to tend to be like you know sisters, and yeah. if you don't deal with one, you get the other eventually. Correct, and it goes in. It generally goes in one direction. So, so people get depressed about being anxious. They don't necessarily get anxious about being depressed. So, there's a lot of things that can make somebody depressed. Anxiety is one of the main ones. Yeah. Um, and and you know if you look at the statistics, well we we know that anxiety is the is the top reason that parents bring their child to see a provider of some sort. We know that it's the most common disorder in the United States today. And we also know that's one of the top predictors of depression. And then we look at the rates of depression increasing in teenagers, and it all sort of comes together. So the great thing about anxiety is if you get in there and you deal with it, it's, it's enormously treatable. Yeah. And families can do things to prevent it. I'm, I'm, so, I'm such a big fan of talking about prevention, of course, because this is something that we can really make a di- you can really make a difference in your family's life if you're aware of it and if you if you can check your own anxious behavior at the door and step into parenting with with that oh god this feels risky but I'm going to I'm going to do it you really can make a huge difference and I see that all the time so I, despite the fact that anxiety is is through the roof and depression is through the roof I remain you know perhaps naively so, but I, I remain pretty optimistic. Oh, that's great. Lynn, as we, um, as we wrap up, I want to know, what would you say is the one thing that if there's one thing a parent could do today to help their child better manage, better uh, lead their anxiety, what would that one thing be? So the one thing is, and this is, this is sort of paradoxical, but you have to get rid of the idea that it's about eliminating worry. And what you have to teach your child is that worry is a normal part of being a human being. We're capable of imagining and thinking about the future. And anything that we do that's, that's based on trying to eliminate worry is going to backfire. So when the worry shows up, we want to validate it. We want to empathize. We want to say, oh, of, I, I say to parents all the time, I couldn't do my job if I couldn't say the phrase, of course. Of course you're going to feel worried about that. And, yeah, that might happen. And you might fail your driver's test or you might throw up on the bus or you might not be able to fall asleep when you go to summer camp the first few nights. But being able to, being able to talk to kids about the reality of uncertainty and being able to use those words, like, I know that sounds tough, but it, it might happen, but we'll figure out how to deal with it. Mm. That's the language that really equips kids versus jumping in and saying, well, let's make sure that doesn't happen. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's such great advice. Lynn Lyons is her name. You're not going to want to miss uh, her book, Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents, Seven Ways to Stop the Worry Cycle and Raise Courageous and Independent Children. Lynn Lyons, again, appreciate your time and your insights. So much, so much of what we're doing, folks, really is about we're trying to help our kids, right? And sometimes when we're trying, it doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't always work to, uh, to bring on the anxiety by being anxious about it. We'll continue the journey, Little Coach's Corner, straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Label! Welcome back, friends. You know, one of the things, um, as I am coaching people with anxiety, I have a, a little philosophy or approach that I use that I call I call anxious people Ferraris in a world full of Chevys. Okay, so it's it's the the person is driving a Ferrari and some I believe some people just like a Ferrari, some are just more uh, high performance um, as far as their their wiring, their sensitivity to information, their tendency to be anxious. They might, you know, heat up like a Ferrari. They might uh, spin out a little bit more. And then I why I bring it up is that uh, I'm a big believer in a theory about high sensitivity. And we've had her on the show a couple times. Elaine Aaron wrote a book called The Highly Sensitive Person, and she found out that about uh, 20% of the animal kingdom, really, 20% of them are more highly sensitive, meaning they're more prone to pick up uh, stimuli through their senses than the other 80% of the animals. And some of the research shows that these these uh, these people, this 20% of the population, are kind of like the early warning detectors for the rest of us. And high sensitives are the the they they probably smells bother them more sounds noise heat other information other stimuli um, loud noises bother them the lighting matters to them these are people that spend a lot of time thinking in their heads they they spend a lot of time worrying about what happened and thinking about what might happen happen and. I noticed that um, the the outcome of that, if you're picking up four times more information or stimuli, you're probably more likely to feel anxious. And um, then I I read Elaine Aaron's book and I thought, holy cow, there's the data. There's the proof of of what's going on. And I, I realized that some people then are just like a Ferrari. And Ferraris are awesome. Don't I mean? But everyone thinks, oh well, yeah. You're just saying that people with anxiety are just better than the rest of us. No, I'm saying somebody that's a Ferrari, it's a great car, but you don't want a Ferrari climbing a mountain, right, in the dirt and going four wheeling. Ferraris are awesome when we're on track, and so you'll see a lot of people with anxiety as long as they're in control and on track where they need where they want to be. Life is great, but the minute you take a Ferrari off track, it starts to break down. <laughs> Things start to happen. And so I think that's why, um, it, to me, it's a really awesome metaphor for dealing with what you would call anxiety or the high sensitivity that causes some of the anxiety. And so this is some examples of things you know um, to help you understand if you're a Ferrari or not. Uh, for example, Ferraris tend to – they overheat pretty quick, right? So if it's getting – if it's if it's if they're stressed, if they're anxious, if there's a lot of pressure on them, you might see them kind of blow up quickly, or you might see them try to disappear and go take a pit stop and stay away from everybody. They tend to hide away. A lot of Ferraris tend to be perfectionists. They tend to worry about the little things, and part of that, I believe, is if you're picking up four times more information or data than everyone around you, then the idea of going for perfection makes sense. Because you know four times more ways to make something perfect. 
Um, another idea of uh, Ferraris are simply the idea that if little things become big things, Ferraris, for example, you feel every bump in a Ferrari. You feel every little, you know, every little issue. It's even driving into a driveway. You've got to be careful because if it's too big of a dip, you could bottom out pretty easily. And these are all little signs of people that have a little anxiety. The neat thing about about high sensitivity, if it's what's driving your anxiety, it be just simply because you pick up so much more information, you might want to have more breaks. You might want to take more pit stops. You might want to make sure that you're actually taking some time or even more time to go put fuel and and to fill up your vessel again, right? Because it's not enough to just keep burning the candle. At some point, you have to you know, you have to put more back into the candle. You have to put more oil back into the lamp instead of just burning it to the end. So think about yourself. Are you an anxious person? Do you tend to want to disappear and, and hide away from people? Do you blow up really fast? Does uh, the fact that you haven't had a meal yet make you really hangry? Do your Do your medicines work really quickly for you? Are you somebody that when you take a pain med, it works? Are you somebody that when you drink caffeine, it it stimulates? I mean, there's some people that could drink all the caffeine in the world and it doesn't seem to affect them. High sensitives are responsive to a lot of these things. And then the natural outcropping or outpouring of too much stimuli is, um, guess what? A little anxiety. So pay attention to it. Um, I've actually been working on writing a book on it, Ferraris in a World Full of Chevys, and also uh, another um, program I put together called Anxious and Engaged, where I know people that aren't even offering their greatest mission and they're they're not offering their greatest gift to the world because they're too anxious about it. And so when we're too anxious, we get disengaged, and I feel like we've got to figure that out. When I disengage what I, from what I'm supposed to be bringing to this world, then I'm not going to feel positive and hopeful in my life, which will probably cause my depression, right? So depression comes from anxiousness, and the anxiousness comes from maybe overstimulation. It's a pretty interesting um, approach and, and philosophy, and uh, we'll be talking a lot more of it on the show because I think it's so critical to each of us. To get ahead of this, if you've got it in your family, quit running from it. Let's put you in the driver's seat of your own Ferrari, and let's teach you how to drive it. More fun straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I mean, it's so true. We listen, we read. There's a bias, right? There's an inherent bias that we all have. And what it then does is it, it actually impacts our selection process, right? So if I am biased against somebody and I, you know, I don't like Joe Blow from my office and I think he's just out to get me, then I'm not going to select all of the data that I notice about Joe Blow, just the data that supports my hypothesis that he's a jerk, that he's out to get me. I may not notice that he gives, you know, that he buys an extra lunch for somebody. I may not notice that. 
or that he even invited me to his son's wedding. May not notice that. I only notice that he's out to get me. And the same is true when we think about um, our political candidates, when we think about the person running. Think about it. If you are a conservative, in the back of your mind, are you not constantly thinking about Hillary's email scandals and how they're eventually going to tear her apart? And ironically, you don't even hear many articles about her email scandals in the liberal media. So why won't the liberal journalists pick up on it? And it's only those right-wing conspiracy groups. Bias. There's just bias. There's inherent bias. Is there an inherent bias uh, to the fact that Bernie Sanders is, is older and we want to know how old he is? And does age really matter? Well, it does with Bernie. But is Rubio too young? It depends. If you're pro-Rubio, you want a young guy like Rubio. Come on. It's amazing. And one year, a candidate's age matters, and another year, it shouldn't matter. And we just heard a huge discussion a couple weeks ago about Hillary Clinton She's she's a yeller. She's a screamer. She's always screaming. You wouldn't say that if she was a man. So it's about bias. Everybody on earth has it. And what uh, our great guest uh, was talking to us about is that scientifically we are going to make our argument not based on fact. We're going to first take our bias, our position, and then we're going to go look for the data that supports it. And the neat thing about data is you can make it say whatever you want it to say. That's why they call it the spin room. So after the New Hampshire election, you're going to see a bunch of spinners spinning. And so Hillary got close enough to Bernie that, oh, see, it wasn't a huge blowout. Or Bernie's pulling away, but of course he was going to. It's New Hampshire. He lives right by there. And we watch the spinsters, and more importantly, notice you. Notice yourself. What do you believe, and how does your bias impact the data you're choosing and the candidates you're favoring? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We thought that we would have, you know, a lot of time to focus. With all this technology, it would buy us more time, right? More time to be with the people we love, more time to be attentive and in tune. And in reality, what ends up happening is not even close. We still don't have time. And so and what I'm talking about is a simple idea of being in love, right? So when somebody thinks about being in love, they always think of the love part. Like the, the love is the, is the important part. You got to – as long as you have the love part, life is going to be great. But what I'm going to be focusing on is not the love part but the in part. You know, the in. You got to be in love. It's kind of like being in debt. It's not the debt. It's being in the debt that's the problem. When you're inundated in the debt, ugh, it's the problem. But if we could be inundated in the love, then life would be great. We're just overwhelmed and so full of love for each other. So when we talk about it, I'm going to get into four different things to make sure that we get in. And our nature, really, uh, we've been told, is a great way to get in. And part of that is because it just automatically probably takes you to a whole different level of in vibration of life, I guess, because 
normally we're just kind of vibrating off of our screens and we're just feeling all of this intensity. In our marriages, in our relationships, four keys to get in the relationship. Number one, you got to tune into your partner. I've been married 25 years in a couple of days, and um, here's the deal. If I don't listen to my partner, if I don't pay attention to my partner, then I do not have a clue what her needs are, her wants are. You have got to learn, all of us have got to learn to tune in to what's really going on with our spouse. What are they really thinking? By the way, like you remember the old radio tuner where you had to tune in and dial in the radio? You might have to adjust it depending on where you were. But the minute you tuned in, it would eliminate a lot of the static. It would get rid of some of the interference. We've got to figure out and be present enough with our spouses to be able to tune into what they're really trying to say. And after 25 years, we should be really good at it, right? Well, only if you've been in. If you haven't been in, then you're not going to be great at being able to dial into what your partner's saying. Some solutions for that are very simply find ways to clarify what your partner is saying. Don't assume you know what they mean because they're saying certain words. Ask them, what do you mean by that? When you say that, I don't know, I'm worried about today. It's not going to go so well. Don't assume you know exactly what that means and don't just like answer it for them. What do you mean? What are you worried about? And let them explain more. Spend more time actually looking at your partner. You know, it's easier to tune into something that you're looking at, right? It might be easier to tune into somebody that you're listening to. So we can tune in with our eyes. We can tune in with our ears. We can tune in with our whole heart. We got to tune into our partner. Another rule, allow your partner in. One of the biggest complaints I hear from par- uh, in marriage uh, coaching and relationship coaching is, I don't even feel like I know my husband. He doesn't even let me into his world. She asks you how your day is. You're like, fine, my day's fine. No more need to discuss it. Do you let your spouse in? Do they share what's really in their heart and in their mind? Do they feel safe enough to share it? Because if they don't feel safe enough to share it, they're not going to share it. Are you a, a safe spouse or will you know you get laughed at? We've got to allow our partners into our fears, our beliefs, our concerns, and that means you've got to be able to hear it. Uh, there was some interesting research done of women that say they want to hear what's going on in their husband's heart, what they're thinking in their mind. And as soon as the husband shares it, almost inevitably, the wife's like, oh, I can't believe you're thinking that. You always think that. I know. My bad. If you want to, your partner to share more, you've got to be able to handle what they bring, and you've also got to be able to make it safe. Another rule is stay more involved in each other's lives. A complaint I hear all of the time is it doesn't seem like my partner's even into the family. They're not even paying attention. They're never involved, which means, dads, you need to help more. Be there for homework. Help your kids do their assignments. Run the carpools more. Pick up the team. Drive the team. Be involved. Also, can I just suggest watch out for how we do our distribution of chores and of um, division of labor. You will make these divisions when you're young, maybe naive. The wife does everything on the inside of the house. The husband does everything on the outside of the house. Be careful, ladies, because there's because we have lighting and technology inside the house. You can end up working all night till midnight, but we can only mow the lawn until it's dusk. If you want a fair and equal division of labor, we're going to have to learn to talk about it. And then last but not least, you got to touch. 
you got to be in touch with each other. If you remember, that's where a lot of the chemicals started in the first place. So make sure you're touching. Uh, and you can touch, you know, in non-sexual ways. You can hold hands. You can hug. You can kiss in front of the kids and drive them crazy. That's the reason we're in love, right? Keep in touch. That's one of the goals. Stay involved. Allow your partner in and tune in to your partner. That's the way you stay in love. Interesting stuff, folks. Hoping to help you see the good in the world. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered and Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, is going to step down. Well. Fired, apparently, according to CNN. Maybe. Really? No, I mean. You say maybe. The president hasn't fired anyone. He usually just gets on Twitter and shames them for months on end until finally they quit. Yeah. So is this a quit? Is this a fired? Is it a mutual agreement? You don't know. Whatever it is. He's out. He's out, and Tillerson's probably quite relieved. Apparently, Steve Bannon is texting people saying, globalists, out! Just, you know, he's another globalist. He's one of these big oil guys that he's more worried about the rest of the world than the United States. I don't know. Yeah. Seems confusing to label people that uh, way. So now, who, Mike Pompeo is going to be the Secretary of State? Nominating CIA Director Pompeo to replace him. Which, uh, it's interesting, wasn't it the CIA that was, again, one of the intelligence agencies that was saying President Trump's people were too involved with Russians? Yes, and that Russians were meddling in the election, even though that's still something that President Trump doesn't quite buy into. Man. Unbelievable. Well, it's happening. Um, we, we've talked about Rex Tillerson maybe leaving. In fact, many didn't think he'd make it through January. Right. I mean, to December, through December to January. But he did. He made it, folks. And now he's, uh, you know, he's gone. And so uh, there's been a lot of uh, also tension around the North Korean thing. Yes. Because many people are still thinking President Trump may be walking into a trap there, promising things that before there's any – usually there's pre-agreements, pre-understandings, well, pre the, the, the president thinks that in the past we have complicated things with experts. Yeah. You got too many people in the room that have too much knowledge. If you just get in there and deal with the basic facts, we can solve this. Yeah. Well, yeah. And – so forget all the experts. In fact, apparently there there really aren't any experts left in the White House that are experts on North Korea. Or someone who they can say, hey, come help us out. They'd be like, eh, you guys are under investigation. I may want to just keep an arm's length here. According to a statement from the White House, POTUS thought it was the right time for the transition with the upcoming North Korea talks and various trade negotiations. POTUS asked Tillerson to step aside on Friday. Huh. Okay. According to sources, so Mike Pompeo will be in. Wow, I mean, this is this is big news. And now, the something with Pompeo when when they deliver the intelligence brief every morning and give the president his daily. This they, is what's happening in the world. Yeah, like when they deliver it to Kelly, who then 
Well, no, no. They, they, they go in. I think they act it out. I'm not sure how they do it. Because, I mean, Trump doesn't read it. Oh, I didn't know it was every day still. I thought that some days they just... It's like, I, depending on what story you're reading, it might be around 11 o'clock when yeah. executive time ends and then he gets to work. Um, but Pompeo comes and delivers it. He's in the room. Usually the director of the CIA doesn't show up for that. There's people that do yeah. that. But he's there. And so he's there talking to the president and apparently they have a good rapport. Well, in a way, so maybe this, is, work. this may be bad news for the CIA who needs Pompeo at working for them because there was estranged relationships with the White House. Well, yeah. And he was supposedly fixing that. The so. CIA, they are the, the deep state. They are undermining the White House at every turn. That's too bad for them because now, yeah. now who's on their side? Um, okay. Wow. Great news, I guess. I mean, not great news, but great new news. That's interesting. Different things happening. Different things happening. Maybe, maybe in the future when we decide that you're going to meet with, you know, North Korea, that your Secretary of State won't be in Djibouti. In my what? Djibouti. That's where Secretary Tillerson was when the announcement happened. And he had to, you know, at a press conference go, well, this is about a meeting, not negotiations. We're a long ways away from that. That might have been maybe yeah. the final straw where they're like, okay, you're not on board. You know what? There is not a more relieved human on this earth today than Rex Tillerson. <laughs> Don't you think? I mean, he's a big dog. Exxon Mobil, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's big, big CEO. Right. And to come in and to just keep smiling as names are being called and Assertions are being made. Or, so, you, so you think he's thinking, I didn't even want the job anyway. I think they're, oh, yeah. I well, think there was a he, point where he, he was like, He was Whoop. questioning it, and his wife told him he had the, a duty to his country yeah. or something to do this. And he's like, all right. And then about four months into it, when I wonder if he thought about that when he had to explain to the media that he kind of gets his talking points for the day from Twitter. Yeah. Hmm. He's like, I don't know if that's the way this is supposed to work. Yeah. And, it's, and he's had a hard time, too, because there's undersecretaries under him that are running much of the state. And they're undermining him. And they're not from him. They're and he's from not the allowed House. to fire them. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough it's great. It's a tough gig. But, uh, well, congratulations. And by the way, I think he's done a fine job, Rex Tillerson, for as much as I know. He's also uh, he's a major scouter. Hmm. He was on the board of the scouts. Really? Yeah. Major, major scouter. And because I'm a, not to brag, but because I've got an eagle, so he's been doing I'm not his pull good rank. You you both have <laughs> eagles, I'm sure, but he's been doing his good turn daily. Yeah, and now he's he's going to clean up camp, make sure he leaves it better than he found it. <laughs> That's what they're going to do. Let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? Authorities are warning Austin residents to be wary of suspicious packages left outside their home after two explosions in the past two weeks left two people dead. On Monday morning, a 17-year-old boy was killed and a woman in her 40s injured after the teen brought a package into the home. The U.S. Postal Service said the package did not go through their facility, so authorities think it was left on the doorstep by someone. Uh, this out of the Austin American Statesman. On March 2nd, yeah. a 39-year-old Stephen or Anthony uh, Stefan House was killed when a suspicious package exploded at his home. Authorities are now investigating whether the incidents might be related. Both incidents occurred at similar times, 6.44 in the morning, 6.55 in the morning, indicating the packages were left on doorsteps overnight. Both are being investigated as homicides. The victims uh, in both incidents were African-Americans. Oh. Uh, there's a third person. 
person that was injured that was Hispanic. Somebody's so, dropping off packages and blowing people up. Yeah. At first, they're like, is this like the Unabomber? Except it's not being mailed. Someone is walking up to the doorstep, dropping the package off and leaving, and then they take it into their home, and then it explodes. Some poor 17-year-old kids thinking, whoa, I wonder what we got. They can't find at so far connections with anybody, so they're, they're I don't know. Oh, wow. And so it's not, it's not going through UPS or FedEx or any of these uh, places, so... They're, they're investigating as they're going on here. Uh, Representative Adam Schiff, the ranking Democrat in the House Intelligence Committee, is not happy that, that the Republicans on the panel have ended the investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election and any ties to the Trump campaign, saying in a statement that the majority has placed the interest of uh, protecting the president over protecting the country, and the history will judge its actions harshly. On Monday evening, Representative Mike Conway of Texas the commi- said the committee is wrapping up the investigation and will get a report to de- Democrats today. House Democrats agree with uh, intelligence agencies that Russia did meddle in the election, Conway said, but saw no evidence of any collusion. Democrats do not think they're, uh, they've interviewed enough people, including major players like former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, or looked through pertinent paperwork, including bank documents. Schiff said the Russians do have leverage, if they do have leverage over the President of the United States, uh, the majority has simply decided it would rather not know. Yeah. And just end it now they, and move they, on. They did say that there were mistakes made, there was kind of, there were <clears throat> ignorant activities done by the Trump Last team. night, uh, what House Intelligence uh, Committee member Ron, Tom Rooney of Florida said on CNN that the there is evidence that the Russians tried to help and hurt both sides of the election. About the House Intelligence investigation, he said, we have gone completely off the rails, and now we're basically a political forum for people who leak information to drive the day's news. As you alluded to, we have lost all credibility. That was a Republican member of the wow. House Intelligence Committee. Yeah, I mean, that used to be the very kind of neutral committee where because everyone was worried about intelligence, so everyone took it seriously. Yeah. No politics were allowed. Which is the way the Senate Intelligence yeah. Committee is running their investigation, which is ongoing. Yes. But the Republicans in the House side are like, yeah, we're done. And and why would they – how come they're done before the Senate? Well, they're done. They're not looking into Michael Flynn, who is on record yeah. and actually – is in trouble for actually lying about meeting with many Russians and uh, the bunch of bank documents that if they do have leverage on the president, the Russians, it would probably be through his through, bank documents yeah. and through the business dealings he had, but they refused to look at that. Well, we would have known all of that if because we would have seen his taxes. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, wow. So, yeah, they're just not going to do it. All right. Interesting. Politics. It's functional. Uh, on the same day that the new Monmouth poll found Democratic candidate Connor Lamb beating Republican nominee Rick Saccone in a special election for the Pres- uh, Pennsylvania 18th Congressional District, the state GOP chairman dismissed the race as being in a Democrat district. Oh. Speaking with Fox News Monday, Val DeGorio said the, uh, reason is, uh, the reason the race is so tight, you have to remember, this is a Democrat district, notwithstanding the fact that the president won by 20 points in 2016. The chairman's claim is... And the Republicans <laughs> gone un... Yeah, so it's counterfactual, as they're saying here. Uh, Representative Tim Murphy was the f- last candidate who had to resign last year amid scandal. He ran unopposed by any Democrat in the last two election cycles. Not only is Tuesday's election for the, the remaining... Uh, so he ran un- unopposed. Trump won this district by 20 points. But the guy's saying, oh, it's Democrat district. He's wow. trying to cover up the fact that... the. Democrat right now is leading in some polls by eight points. 
This isn't going good. into today, which is this isn't good for Republicans. Now, today's election is only for the remaining nine months of Murphy's term. Yeah, right. Then they have to run again, but this district won't even exist next week. Oh, really? Because in Pennsylvania, they get to redistrict this year because the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania uh, said they was gerrymandered. Uh, so yeah. make them more even, and this district they're running in will completely be re... Will it, will it then be restructured to be a Democratic... They think it'll lean more that way because it's been pushed so far Republican. they got to bring it back, so it'll be more favorable the other way at the moment. Yeah. So we'll see where, where it goes. But the interesting number, Republicans have spent around $12 million to support the uh, Republican uh, Saccone. And the Democrats have spent $300,000 nationally. For lamb that Trump calls lamb the sham. Yes. Lamb the <laughs> sham. Because, uh, you know, rhyming. Yeah. The NRA put another almost seven thousand dollars, really? an ad buy in for Sacone for today. Really? So they just keep pumping yeah. money into this district. We'll see if it works. Man. Uh, the Baltimore Orioles announced Monday that this season they will offer tickets to their youngest fans at a price even those without an allowance can afford. Really, zero dollars. <gasps> wow. The cool. majority of uh, the Major League Baseball team unveiled its new Kids Cheer Free initiative, which will offer free admission for up to two children ages nine and under for the with the purchase of a regular price adult upper deck ticket. The program will make tickets available through the program on a month by month basis for any game at Camden Yards this season, except the opening day. How cool! So the Dodgers the parents could, could the take their kids. Dodgers could never do that. No, because they because they sell, sell out. out all the time. Yeah. See, but what did, I guess Dodgers don't like kids. Yeah, I guess not. They saying? don't like families. The it's, Orioles love the kids, and they or twenty third in attendance last they year. They love filling <laughs> the seats. That it's was the best sad. Part. What's happening to baseball? The kids be- aren't even being best loved. part of the story. Twenty third in attendance. Oh, they're just trying to get people in the stands so it doesn't look so empty. <laughs> okay, great. No, you guys are cynics. Uh, finally, authorities in Colorado looking for a man suspected of stealing a snowcat. Fitted out to yeah. look like the uh, the General <laughs> Lee it. from the TV show Dukes of Hazard. Really? Yeah, it's kind of orange. Has a zero one on the door. There's no Confederate Does flag. It have a really great horn. Maybe who knows? I mean, you can buy those. They're did online. The, did the brothers drive that, or is that the guy that's all dressed in white? Boss Hog? Yeah. No. Sorry, I know all this. Uh, Boss <laughs> Hog. <laughs> Roscoe is, P. He's not back. Roscoe him. P. Coltrane. He's not back there. Is Cooter? Uh, no. Cooter there? Enos isn't running around. <laughs> I guess I missed Daisy that show. And, Daisy and Uncle Jesse aren't around either. It's Daisy. out there. Don't watch it. It doesn't hold up. It ruined. I, I watched an episode several years ago and it's, ah, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, this is. I have so... my childhood images of how awesome it was that that car would jump. Yeah. Not what about the movie, it. though? The movie was horrible because they tried to make it into a parody instead of just playing uh-huh. it straight. But you can't play it Instead straight. Instead of playing it whole... straight, Bo and Luke Duke. <laughs> Bo show was ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, the co-owner, John Brandenburg, says the large treaded snow vehicle was on a trailer outside a restaurant when someone hitched it up and drove away sometime Sunday. He immediately took to social media and received several, several responses from people who said they saw a pickup hauling it west on Interstate 70. Brandenburg said the thief covered the snowcat in tarps, but the door decal on the side door was still visible. The snowcat was tra- uh, tracked to a garage in Grand Junction area. A SWAT team was deployed, Uh-oh. but the Ooh. suspect managed to get away. Ooh, that's kind of exciting. And they wow. did not recover that the was a big morning. Dukes of Hazard snowcat. Wow. That's kind of, in a way, it's just way too bad. Well, it's like if you have a Dukes of Hazard snowcat and yeah. it's capable of someone just pulling up and hitching it up and leaving, isn't that on you? Yeah. Shouldn't you take some more precaution on some level? 
I always um, I always take my keys out of the snowcat and I good. put them under the mat in mm. the car in the snowcat. That's like the second place people look. Then, right. then if I don't, I put them. Sometimes I put them up in the visor. Mm. Actually, then, that's the first place they look. And then if you steal something that can be described as a Dukes of Hazard snowcat, and then you don't cover it up adequately, yeah, that's kind of on you also. Yeah, again, mistakes all around here. Cover I mean, up the snowcat. How many times do we have to help these people? Maybe this guy should be dubbed the Snowcat. He got away. Meow. Yeah. He did get away. And that um, call out for the SWAT team. Hey, we found the Snowcat and it looks like the Dukes of Hazard. That's what you're looking for. No. What? So what he'll are we be doing? I'm I'm guessing this guy will be dressed in all white with like a cowboy white cowboy hat. Yeah. Could he'll be. actually be sitting in the back of a Cadillac convertible, mm-hmm. white Cadillac convertible. It's got some steer, steer, steer horns, horns on the front of the car. Yeah. <laughs> oh, those are the good old days. E- eating a ham sandwich. He's always eating in the back seat. Did uh, speaking of um, Boss Hog, rough transition. Go ahead. Did you hear about this guy that they they did a brain scan on him, and they found out that he has an, a pocket of air in his brain. Uh oh, like this is. Uh, a mind-blowing story, a brain-blowing Could story. Could be literally, yeah. 84-year-old man arrived in the emergency room with complaints that were uncommon for a patient his age. He had reported feeling um, unsteady over the past several months. and um, Oh, they weren't uncommon. He was unsteady, and he kept falling, which was weird, right? And in the last three days, his left arm and his leg had become a lot weaker. So they're thinking stroke. Sure. The man's having a stroke. He's 84 years old. So they go in. They do a little scan on his old brain. And guess what they found? A pocket of air in his brain. Oh, my heavens. How did you know that? (laughs) They found that he – by the way, he didn't smoke. He didn't do anything like that. He rarely drank and blood didn't say anything. But apparently he had a sinus infection that had turned to some tumor and the tumor was eating – Away at his brain and actually leaking air into his what brain, and he has a gaping mass of air, a, a, a gaping I don't know what they call it, like a a hole that's filling up his brain with air. Can anything be done? Yeah, uh, yeah, they're going to fix the hole. No, apparently. The story goes on. What he was going to have surgery, and but he decided because of health and his age that he was not going to have the surgery. What a horrible way to go, though. So they gave him some uh, medicine to prevent. They they think he had a stroke at some point, so they gave him some medicine to prevent a secondary stroke. Yeah, get rid- and so he doesn't bleed out because there's. They said the non-surgical approach is not without risk. It's likely the patient will be at greater risk for infection since it remains a passageway for air into his brain cavity. So by breathing, he's could he could be breathing in. Oh my! Every like, time he virus sniffs, every time when you he... got to breathe. But, but they yeah. said so far it's been twelve weeks. He's doing fine. He's reported no, no, he no longer feels weakness on the left side of his body. And it's feels... called a pneumocephalus. Oh. I wouldn't want to go that way. The x-rays are crazy. There's just this dark mass yeah. of nothing where <sighs> some brain should be. Like he'll cough. Any coughing mm-hmm. might bring air in. Any sniffing. So this guy's hanging on by a thread. No, he's actually, I think. It sounds like he's thriving. Yeah, he... but I mean, if if you if it's easy for a 34-year-old to get sick, imagine how easy it is for an 84-year-old to get sick. Yeah. I mean, probably a really bad cold. Oh, yeah. Be, That'll know. be the – I don't want to say it, but 
they yeah. don't. So be grateful that uh, your body's working the way it's supposed to. And careful with your sniffles. You could be filling your brain up with air. Unbelievable story. Uh-oh. Again, the, that is the, the deviated septum of the POTUS. Uh, good stuff, folks. So much uh, we're trying to stay ahead of. Again, Rex Tillerson has been released by the president. Up next, we're going to be talking about idle time at work. Why, uh, why, it's, why it's a problem and what are some things we can be doing about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Do you have much downtime at work? When employees have too much downtime at work and not enough work to do, productivity obviously suffers. A recent study shows that companies in the United States are spending over $100 billion in wages for time that their employees are, uh, are, are basically where they're waiting for work. Uh, where they have this downtime, $100 billion in wages. Joining us from Austin, Texas, is uh, Dr. Andrew Brodsky. He's an assistant professor in the McCombs School of Business from the University of Texas at Austin and the co-author of this study. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us today. Great. Thanks for having me on. So uh, talk to us about um, this uh, the study you've been doing. You talk a lot about idle time, so maybe just define for us what is idle time at work. Sure. So one of the things that a lot of people uh, often get confused about is they think we're talking about time that employees are just wasting or surfing on the Internet on their own. That's not what we're talking about here. When we're talking about idle time, we're talking about time when employees are not able to engage in work for some reason beyond their own. Oh, interesting. They're waiting on customers, uh, their managers inefficiently assigning work. Maybe some machinery broke down, but they literally cannot engage in work no matter what they wanted to do. So it's not it's not laziness. It's not just people sloughing around. It's where they are incapable of getting to their work because of some other impediment. Exactly. And some of that's very rational on the part of organizations. You know, you need to have some extra capacity to handle unexpected tasks. On the other side of that, a lot of that is not planned. You know, managers aren't always efficient about assigning work. Um, sometimes people are waiting around and there's just nothing for them to do. Now, how widespread is this? Yeah, so we conducted a nationally representative survey um, of employees in the U.S. workforce. And we found that 78%, a little over 78% of people noted they experienced idle time at work. Um, and of the total p- people we um, surveyed, over 21% said they experienced idle time every day in their job. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. So, so many of us experience idle time. And uh, I know in um, the write-up on the study, one of the things it showed, too, is that knowing that there's idle time, it then affects how people actually go about doing their work when they are working because they might – they might, you know, throttle their work depending on if how much idle time they might have before or after. Exactly. So the idea behind this is that uh, people generally don't want to be idle. 
And there's two reasons for this. Uh, one, it can be really boring when you're sitting there for an hour, two hours at a time with nothing to do and your organization blocks your access to the internet and you just, it's, it's exhausting just doing nothing. And the other side of that is more externally where managers will often punish employees who are seen as doing nothing, even if it's not the employee's fault. Huh. Uh, so there's these incentives, both internally and externally, to stretch out your work so you're not bored yourself and so you're not punished for your manager for being seen as useless, even if it's their fault. You have nothing to do. Well, you could almost see that uh, if you're looking like you're bored, then they give you other jobs to go do that aren't – that are horrible, <laughs> that nobody wants to do. So interesting. Exactly. A little punitive effect there. But what you've been discovering too, I mean there's a major down, there's a major effect of this uh, to the dead time. How does it impact the businesses, the employees? What's the overall impact? Yeah, so this is just the first of uh, a number of studies we're looking at doing on the topic. But first, one of the big implications of this is that it's a tremendous amount of expenditure that no one really talks about or realizes. Because, you know, as we mentioned, that employees tend to slow down when they expect idle time. Organizations don't realize how much extra capacity they have. Uh, So there's this big waste of uh, potentially money and resources. And on the other side of that, employees are stuck uh, doing something they don't want to do. As workers, we don't want to sit around generally um, doing absolutely nothing and not being allowed to relax or go home or play on the Internet Mm. Um, or kind of having to pretend to do busy work, which is also just as bad as sitting there being stuck doing nothing. Yeah, just pretending. It's funny because I know in a lot of uh, like manufacturing, the 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 new the movement, the relatively new movement um, mm-hmm. is this whole just in time movement where every, yeah. everything is like your inventory. You have just enough for what you need for that day and they just keep restocking it. Uh, on a daily basis instead of having too much or too little. But it's almost like they haven't figured out kind of the just-in-time time management. Yeah. So we're talking about both manufacturing and service sector jobs. But we're, you know, we generally expect this to be less visible is in jobs where it's not as clear when there's this kind of downtime. So you can imagine you have um, a teacher who's stuck staying at work to the end to the end of the day, even if they don't have classes at the end of the day, and they've already finished their planning. Or maybe a police officer who's you know just has to sit on the side of the road and wait for calls potentially, or an investment banker who's waiting on information from a customer in order to build a report. The idea here being the time is very really not visible externally, whereas with manufacturing, everyone kind of goes down at the same time. Yeah, and you can. And I mean, I remember being on a Honda, uh, like the Accord manufacturing plant, and they say if this thing stops, if this line stops, it costs us this much money a minute, and mm-hmm. um, and you you know that thing only stops once a day for a minute, not mm-hmm. it doesn't go down. But boy, I didn't think about that. But a school teacher that's done with her planning, done with her last class, but can't leave till this time. Nothing else to do. Can't surf the internet. Then they just sit there. Exactly. Is it demoralizing? Exactly. It's got to be one of the, maybe one of the causes for so much disengagement and people being mm-hmm. unengaged and disengaged at work. Yeah. So in this study, we didn't measure measure engagement, but we did a number of interviews prior to this, and this was a common thread that was coming out. You know, one that might be closer to your industry is journalists. Often they have you know one story or two stories to do in the day, but 
they're often still required to sit at their desk for the rest of the day, even though they finish their story that was due for the day. <laughs> yeah. What's your recommendation? I mean, is it is it better to just let them get on the internet and leave? What would be a better solution? So we we have a number of solutions that we talked about. Um, the most central of which is trying to create um, a workplace where everyone feels comfortable being open with how much work they have or how much work they don't have. And they don't feel like they're going to be punished for saying that they don't have work to do. And by punished, I mean potentially fired for being seen as extra capacity, but also that they're necessarily going to be assigned extra work for saying that they're done, Mm -hmm. you know, which you mentioned up. The idea being that if people finish early, they're told, hey, you know, you can relax, you can go on the internet. But on the off chance that something unexpected comes up, we ask that you're available for it. Um, as opposed to the other side of it, whereas if they just are busy the entire time and something unexpected comes up, no one's available. So it's just kind of win-win on both sides. So or- organizations get the extra capacity, but rather than employees having to pretend to be busy or sit there and do nothing, they get some kind of benefit, whether it's relaxing, going home early, et cetera. Hmm. It also seems like a great time for them, I mean, to work on systems, to work on ideas, that make them more efficient. I mean, a lot of times we we talk about how you know it's never safe at work to just pull out a book and start reading a book. But mm-hmm. this might be a good time for people to read books or do things or go on and do online training and learn and you know re you know reinforce their skill sets and, and do so without fear of repercussion. Exactly. And the idea is maybe encourage something that is enjoyable for employees, but will also benefit the organization, maybe in some indirect way as well. Um, but if there's if the if it's created a system where it's going to be if you're done with work, we're going to give you something that's really unenjoyable to do, then people aren't going to finish their work quickly for yeah. obvious reasons generally. And am I naive in this? But it seems like uh, this also might be a byproduct of us with kind of an old clock mentality where what mattered most was the hours served, not the product developed and delivered. And Mm -hmm. it seems like maybe salary workers that their job is just to get certain things done, not necessarily always have to be there a certain amount of time. I mean, I guess in service areas, you need them there a certain amount of time, but in other jobs, you know, maybe once you're done, you're done. And if you're really efficient and getting great numbers, and then we ought to just let you go home. Mm-hmm. There's some really interesting research um, on FaceTime and input bias, uh, some of which came out of Wharton, where they actually did an experiment where they had managers rate how good a presentation was. And for half the people, they told um, they told the manager that, hey, the, you know, this employee spent only a few hours, spent a few hours doing the presentation. Another half of people were told this employee spent, you know, a lot of hours making the presentation. Uh, but both presentations were identical. Hmm. But the managers who heard the employee spent a long time doing it rated the presentation as better. Really? So the idea here being this is called the input bias. The idea here being that we evaluate, we evaluate often the effort put into something rather than the outcome which in this case is pretty bad for organizations because you're, you're rewarding the less productive employee who's seen as working longer mm-hmm. rather than the more productive employee who gets the same output. Yeah. Wow. And um, what would you recommend? Again, we're speaking with Andrew Brodsky, who is a professor at the McCombs School of Business from the University of Texas at Austin, 
co-author of a study that we're talking about on idle time at work. Any other recommendations that you'd give the, just the rest of us? If, I, if I'm if i finishing my day early, if I know I have idle time, um, I, I guess just from your experience, I ought to stay busy. I ought to look busy and stretch it out, <laughs> make it look like I've done nothing but put in time all day. I mean, it's unfortunate because this is a situation that needs to be fixed at the management level because they're creating an incentive structure where people where it makes sense just to pretend like you're working or stretch out your work. Um, As employees, you know, what you can try and do is figure out maybe volunteering tasks that we often call organizational citizenship behaviors that you actually enjoy in the office that make you uh, look good. So thinking about, okay, what's something I enjoy about my work? Maybe it's mentoring. And then figuring out, well, maybe I'll use my free time for that. So it so it looks like I'm busy, but it's something that I'm enjoying as yeah. opposed to just stretching out the existing tasks that you have to do. And I guess make sure your boss buys in because if they're the old clock person, um, yeah. then you're just you're. Why aren't you at your desk? I'm just mentoring. <laughs> exactly. Get back to your desk. Isn't it funny how how again? I think that's what's really neat about your kind of research is. We what really works and what's really happening? We're, we're not always working from that paradigm. A lot of times, we're just working from an old paradigm that you got to be at your desk. Exactly, and we're not saying that employees aren't overworked. It's possible to be heavily overworked and have idle time. It's just the idea that there are two separate periods. Yeah, you know, you could be busy, you know, thirty hours of the week, and then you're stuck you know, ten hours just sitting there doing nothing. It's hurry up and wait. It is a phrase that I believe is often used in the military. Yeah, hurry up and then wait. And and meanwhile, that is something that organizationally every leader ought to be looking at: is why are we having these gaps of downtime, especially when it's costing us a hundred billion dollars overall? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Interesting stuff, Andrew. Thank you so much. This is, I think, a great insight for all of us. Again, Andrew Brodsky. Assistant Professor in the Macomb School of Business from the University of Texas at Austin, helping us understand our idle time. Up next, we'll do a little Coach's Corner, see if we can't uh, you know, bring some more solutions to you right here on the Matt Townsend Show. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, life is hard anyway, right? And now you, you're sitting there. I love that discussion from Andrew Brodsky about this, this idle time. Sometimes at work, we, um, it's, the idle time is because of us. We're just wasting time. And some of us may have learned how to stretch our work out. And some of us just are waiting for the company to quit getting in the way and making our job easier. Would you rather, as you think about it, would you rather have a really busy full day where you go nonstop? Or would you rather have a lot of downtime to uh, to do writing, to do thinking, to do, you know, surfing of the web? How do you like to um, to go through your day. And one of the big keys I think uh, I've been noticing with my own time is um, if, I, if I'm in a situation where I am idle and don't have anything to do, I've been recently trying to figure out what is my default? What is my default activity if there's nothing else going on? 
And I'm trying to move it to instead of going to just my favorite uh, my favorite vice, which I won't mention the name, but it rhymes with Betflix. Um, instead of going there and just vegging out with Netflix, what if I just pull out a book? What if I pull out a, a podcast like Terry spends all day listening to podcasts and just keeping those running in his head as he's out, out and about doing the things he needs to do? What do you do? What is your default? And if you're not feeling good about your default, then let's actually change it. Let's work on it. It doesn't – there's no need to sit there and feel guilty because you're at work and you have idle time. There's also no need to feel guilty um, if you're at work and you can be more productive and you're not. Let's just change it and be more productive. We don't need to to try to also – um, sandbag it and try to find a way that we look like we're busy and we're acting like we're busy and we're we're really just hiding out. I mean, you've still got many, many years before retirement, right? If you're already sandbagging your way to retirement, you may not think that's a problem. And again, I'm not here to make a moral call on it, but I am here to help you figure out that if you're not passionate about what you're doing, or you know, doing it in a way that you really feel good about, you're going to have a really long life. And life's already hard enough. We don't need to make it harder by having our job be something that we have to pretend the entire time. The other thing I'm, I'm convinced of is if you are pretending to make it through the day and you are sandbagging it and you're not sure you have the energy to do it, it's, it's not like everybody doesn't know that. Think about your organization. Can you tell who in your organization is really inspired and motivated and loves what they do, just loves it? Can you tell who is just basically pushing for the watch, <laughs> the one that, that retirement watch that they're going to give you, and uh, eventually, hey, I've only got five more years, then I get my watch. We all know. We all know where you are. You cannot not communicate, as Paul Watzlewick talks about. So if every one of us in our organization um, are trying to, to hide out, then we probably are losing a lot of engagement in our teams. And we probably might be losing even more than just engagement. We might be losing a little bit of ourself. What would happen to your energy levels if you could somehow bring more passion back into your life, more focus, more excitement? Um, earlier as we were talking with Andrew, one of the things he said is, you know, if you have idle time, remember idle time is time where your organization, because of the systems, the structures, you're waiting for something before you can get back to your work. Um, and if you're in that situation, then maybe go find something you can do in that time that actually energizes you and makes you feel rejuvenated. Something that really truly feels like recreation or recreation that uh, that activity that makes you feel recreated, recommitted to your workplace. And it might be mentoring. It might be learning. Um, I think it's a really powerful idea to see people in the workplace that I actually can see are studying or learning or reading a book or a management book or doing tr- online training. That's um, That's powerful. And I think if we're bosses, if we're managers, we really ought to make sure that we're making that available to people. And even create some best practices. We might want to sit down with our team and figure out, hey, what are some really positive things we can be doing during our downtime? 
our idle time and make a list of what those things are. And I would seriously make TED Talks, uh, any training online, any type of uh, reading of books, maybe even you break people into teams and have them go teach each other what, you know, different different things that you can do in the workplace. I mean, I know there's a lot of stuff I don't know about my own job that I I could be learning in downtime moments. So powerful stuff, folks. Uh, it is our life, right? It's our it's ours. And if you're starting to feel a lot of uh, dread from work, if you're trying to if you're feeling more exhausted and you don't have any excitement about your job, it simply might be you don't have enough of your passion in it. You're not there's not enough of you in what you do. And if there's not enough of you in it, then you're going to have to figure out ways to get it in there or you will burn out. You'll uh, you'll just fizzle out someday. So, little coach's corner for you. Little advice. Hey, it's just one point of view. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend show. Welcome back, friends. You know, if you've ever had that uh, that really ugly license picture, a uh, picture on your driver's license, you know it, it can be a tough thing. So Terry, um, mm. who loves pictures, a mm-hmm. and loves the DMV, no, not at all, has been doing some research about um, apparently a license, a, a new bill. Yeah, it's in California. Do you like your driver's license no. photograph? I, I don't have my glasses on. Okay, I, which I find weird. Do you, do you smile in yours? Jeff's pulling his out of his wallet at the moment. I, I smile in it. Do Mine you? could be better. Okay. But I can't see. Mine, I'm trying to look at my ID here. Yeah, mine looks exactly like my uh, BYU ID. Let's see that. Well, I'm just, just kind of staring off into- Oh, yeah. See looks the, like a the, mugshot. The soulless being that's standing there in front of the camera like, God, come on. Because, I mean, you stand in line. Yeah. But as I was getting mine uh, taken, there's people combing their hair. They're kind of, you know, fixing the makeup. And I'm like, and I just walk up there, take it. All right, great. Because, I mean, when, yeah. when the cop pulls you over, what are you, are you smiling? Are you happy? No. No. So they need to ID you as being you, so I give them a neutral- <laughs> Kind of no emotion because yeah. that's kind of what just I kind of how you roll. Just give me the ticket so I can move on here. So in California, a bill introduced by a California senator would allow for people to. This is a senator of a state senator, so this isn't like a national. Yeah, right, right. Uh, it would allow people to request that more than one photo be taken when they are posing for their license at the DMV. Oh boy! So you'll see an array, and you go, oh, "I like number two better. I'll, I'll take that one." You know? Yeah. The Senate bill would also allow people to bring in their own photos and request that they be put on their driver's license. No. No. Oh, some glamour shot? Yeah. With a boa and your hair blowing in the wind? I told my wife last night, Matt's going straight to the feathered boa. That's how this will work. If you're going to have a glamour shot, this is... This is going to be seen by every officer that pulls you over. Or the, the family photo. What was that one, Jeff? The one that had, like, the extra face... Oh yeah, remember those? Oh like the, yeah, the, awkward the floating head. There you go, the oh, floating head photos. Yeah, those are. You... By, by the way, this is no longer a cop issue either. This is now TSA. Yeah. Every airline, everybody now is going to see this picture because they use your DMV photo for yeah. all those sort of ideas. The bill would require the DMV to establish fees for each additional photo that someone might request. Yeah. 
plus guidelines for any photos that people might submit. So there's limits. Yeah. You can't well, you can't pose with your new you know gun or something you see. Can sometimes. you have your dog with you? No dogs, probably. Maybe maybe you can't do the thing that people do on Facebook where they they don't have a photo of themselves. It's like scenery. Yeah. Or they post like husband and wife together because they share this account. No, you can't do that. <laughs> None of that. But remember, this is a legal document. So yeah. I, all I care about is that the DMV cares that it's a good photo. To recognize you, because this may just be the photo you need to be recognized when they're trying to identify your body, A, or when they're looking for you up in the woods. So please, DMV, just at least on the other hand, right? On the other hand, if your photo happens to end up on the evening news, yeah, do you want the photo on your driver's license being? Mm. The photo that it is that represents you, that everyone goes, "Hey, wait, I remember that guy." Well, you and know, you don't what? Look honestly, your best. that I, I like the idea. Take four of them. Take one. Where can I get both of my eyes open? See, yeah. here at the ID office, the lady asked, "Would you like me to take another picture?" And I thought, yeah. "Oh, that was nice." And then I thought, "Is she trying to tell me that this is a horrible picture?" Yeah. Wow. Mine just kept saying. Okay, to the left, look, work it, work it. And they'd turn fans on and just lots of flash And then they bolts. told you to cough? Yeah. No. <laughs> turn no, left. They didn't. No. no. They no, were just like, trying to get a good picture. Act like you're enjoying this. <laughs> the, uh, the revenue from the additional photos will go towards a driver's education and training fund, which sounds like something when you get a ticket and you have to go to class. And, yeah, yeah, I think that is So that. the bill is currently being discussed. Well, okay. I mean... I guess they're bringing it up. That's good. Yeah. I don't know if it's needed. I I like the idea that they just, I think the the rule ought to be get it right. Everybody ought to have a picture that at least their mama would recognize. Until you're the second person in line and someone pulls out their phone and goes, I have this on my phone. How do I get this into your system? And you're like, oh, sorry, no, that doesn't work. work. But just get it right. Let's just, we'll take it here. We'll have a good camera. Get it right. Work it. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you get a good photo at the DMV. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, along with Jerry and Teffy. Jerry? Teff and Jerry. Huh. Mutt and Jeff. Mutton? Teff and... Jerry, do you have Tourette's right now? Is no. that what's going on? I tried to I tried to reverse the name. I tried to say Terry first, mm. Jeff second. Hmm. This but it just didn't come out right. Well, you know, good try. Yeah, last time I tried that. Hey, got a great show for you today. We're going to teach you uh, how to stay calm in any situation. I was very calm just now when you butchered my name repeatedly. Thanks, Jerry. Hmm. Um, at least I'm not taffy. <laughs> would you call me Taffy? Taffy. That would be a great – maybe that's your new nickname. So we'll be talking about how to stay calm in any situation. And I'm telling you, there's somebody – I don't know. I, I think um, – you may not have heard it. Rex Tillerson is out. Um, here is Donald Trump – President Donald Trump's announcement of his new director. Listen to this. Is, this was his Twitter feed. Mike Pompeo, director of the CIA, will become our new secretary of state. That's his announcement that Rex Tillerson's gone. He will do a fantastic job, exclamation point. Thank you to Rex Tillerson for his service, exclamation point. 
Gina Haspel will become the new director of the CIA and the first woman so chosen. Congratulations to all. See, now that's bigly, right? Well, Steve Goldstein, undersecretary for public diplomacy at the State Department, says that Rex Tillerson found out that he was fired by that tweet. No. The secretary had every intention of staying because of the critical process made in national security. He will miss uh, his colleagues at the Department of State, which left after they fired half of them, the foreign ministers that he has worked with throughout the world. The official added that Tillerson didn't get to speak with the president and doesn't know why he was fired. The secretary did not speak to the president, unaware of the reason. He is grateful for the opportunity, blah, blah, blah. Who was the other guy that found out that he was fired on TV? He was giving a speech somewhere, found out on TV. Scaramucci? No, the FBI director, Comey. Oh, Comey, He was in California, right. and in the back of the room was a TV airing live news, and oh. his face is all over it, and he just kind of figured because, you know, stuff was happening. Yeah, he's in the FBI. And someone, someone took him aside and said, uh, you just got fired. He went, uh, what? <laughs> that's, how, that's how you do it. When you're running yeah. a huge company, you mm. don't bring the person in and talk to them. You, you fire it. them without ever speaking with them. That's the way you do it. You bring them in, you sit them down, you say, look. It's how deal makers Thank you for done. serving your country. Thank you for serving me. He has a real aversion to firing people, right? But the thing he's known for firing is people. saying you're fired. And especially doing it eye to eye and just appreciate, hey, I appreciate what you've done, Rex. We're going a different direction. Like Thank if you. he doesn't like hmm. Jeff Sessions, just fire him. Don't be all passive aggressive on, on Twitter all the – you know, just now, do it. Do you remember about five months ago they were saying when he was threatening to fire Tillerson, the, I think yeah. the second or third time, um, he – there was this big document or this big article that came out saying certain people like the generals mm-hmm. would all conspire and say if Tillerson goes, yes. we're all going. They called it a suicide pact. So is Which have, is really harsh. But have still. we initiated a suicide pact? <laughs> no. They're not all just going to walk away. I mean... Even though they're talking about a possible replacement for uh, McMaster's. Yeah. Because he may well, be out too. Well, by the way, again, uh, it, it just seems like the White House is a revolving door. And one of the things that we, we all were hoping for with a president that wasn't so political but was really just a business guru is that he would know how to supposedly run it as a business. Maybe that's how he was running his business. Oh, sure, no, I think he is running this. How, he, But his business before was a tiny, really small business. And basically ran by his kids. And when they came to Wrong. A, when they came to a point where they needed something decided upon, they'd go to him and he'd yeah. just say, yeah, sure. Well, I, I feel bad for Rex Tillerson going out this way, but I honestly believe he's really happy. <laughs> like, okay, I'm out. Thanks, everybody. I did what I could. God bless America. And then he'll, they'll go put him on five boards and he'll be over, Yeah, you know. He'll go back to oil and he'll be fine. Go back to oil and scouting. The perfect combination. So, uh, okay, interesting stuff. Plus uh, – Do you mean that because scouts are kind of greasy? No, they're not. Okay. Somewhere, they are. Somewhere. You know, they go – Especially after like a week of camping. Oof. Oof. Nobody showers. Yeah, but swimming in the lake doesn't count. You don't need to shower. You just rub dirt on it. You rub dirt on it. Yeah, I know. I think that's for wounds. Got to hose the car out when you get home. It's just, oh, so bad. That's why I could never be a scoutmaster. I would probably leave kids. <laughs> <laughs> I missed one. Oh, and they'd all. I wouldn't let them back in my car. No, you're all filthy. Everybody up on the roof. We're gonna tie you down. Make sure everybody's holding a rope. Here we go. 
Oh, boy, that's bad parenting. Let's get to the headlines, Terry. What else should we be paying attention to? Police in Austin, Texas, are investigating three package explosions this month that they believe to be related. Officials say they have identified similarities between incidents of the two which were fatal. A Monday morning explosion that killed a teenage boy caused a woman life-threatening injuries was followed just hours later by a second blast, which left a 75-year-old woman in critical condition. On March 2nd, a man was killed when he picked up a package that exploded in a press conference. Austin Police Chief Brian Manley said Monday that investigators are treating all three incidents as connected, retroactively upgrading the first incident to be a homicide rather than a suspicious death. Now now that there's a trend. They're also looking into possibility, is this some sort of racially motivated? It's on a a side of town that's historically uh, African-American. Oh, no way. Two of the the three people that were killed are African-American, one's Hispanic. So is there something there? They're just trying to rule things out. But you have someone dropping packages on people's doorsteps. So now if you live in Texas, watch out for packages. Well, Austin. Austin. Yeah, they don't think it's widespread. They think it's in Austin, but... The other side is it's uh, three packages. You know, they're telling people to be cautious, but, you know, try not to alarm the public. But, you know, warn them, I guess. Now, this isn't one of those uh, boards, hoverboards. No. They're not all sending hoverboards no, out. No, 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 no. This isn't like a battery that's blowing okay. up. Okay. Hey, I've been I've been wanting to get one of those. Are you saying I should not get one? I'd wait. Yes. I'd really? Wait. Just wait. wait a couple more weeks hmm. see how this goes. The Republican-led House Intelligence Committee announced Monday that it is ending its probe into collusion between President Trump and Russia, saying they found no evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. The committee's 150-page draft report, which I bet you is a page-turner, oh, bet you yeah. it's full of all kinds of... One- oh, yeah. These governmental reports, oh, they're all... You gotta love, they're but you huge. love reports anyway. No, no, I like someone else to read them and then say, hey, this was in it, but, you know, maybe that's a yeah. fault on my own. I can do the audiobook version for you if yeah, you'd like. The report will be delivered to Democrats to review today. They'll come out with their own version. The report will also contradict the intelligence community's consensus that Russia interfered. Interference had a preference toward Trump during the 2016 election. We found that perhaps some bad judgment, inappropriate meetings, inappropriate judgment in taking meetings, and only Tom Clancy would take this series of inadvertent contacts, meetings, or whatever, and weave them into some sort of spy thriller that could go out there. Really? This is Representative Only Mike Tom Conway. Only Tom Clancy would do that. Right. That makes sense. They did go meet in the Seychelles, but it's fine. That's just an yeah, island. Yeah, I mean, come on. I, mean, I, I, I was just reading a comic book where they're, they're having a $40 billion, you know, under under the yeah. table transfer of money. Where'd they go? The Seychelles. But it's maybe funny. Th- maybe that's the point, though, is that they were just ignorant. They, di- they were new they, novices. They didn't know what's going on. Yeah. They didn't know. It's fine. They had meetings. That's different than collusion. They sat down with Russians in Trump Tower. It's fine. Yeah. Collu- it's fine. Collusion would mean they were informed. Yeah. I, I really don't think they could have possibly cooperated. I think the Russians tried really hard. Yeah. I just don't think the Trump people could finish the deal for some reason. Yeah. Any collusion? <laughs> Reporters just yelling that out now. That's how we do press conferences. We couldn't establish the same uh, collu- uh, conclusion that the CIA did, that they specifically wanted to help Trump. The report also c- includes a section on criminal leaks relating to the Trump dossier, but the committee lacked the evidence to make any criminal referrals to the Justice Department. The committee ex- expects the Democrats to either make drastic changes to the report or to issue their own report. So like we had dueling memos before, yeah. we'll have dueling reports that are each 150 pages long and no one actually looks at because they're boring. Yeah. And no conclusion. This is, and, and let's just wait now for Mueller's investigation and the Senate's version. 
Yes. And it might be that the Senate is really the one that's going to come out on top here. Mueller might seem polluted to the Republican members. The Congress's version is polluted to the Democratic members. So now it's just up to the Senate. Right. We'll see. We'll see what happens. A newly released video from the Department of Defense appears to show U.S. Navy pilots encountering a UFO. Yes, I saw this. ABC News reported Monday that the pilots confronted a mysterious object in 2015 while flying along the East Coast. The 36-second video of the sighting was released to uh, it's called the Stars Academy for the Arts and Science, a scientific research and media company. In an op-ed published in the Washington Post Friday, Christopher Mellon, a former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense for Intelligence in uh, the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations, blasted the U.S. government for a lack of research on these incidents. If the origin of these aircraft is a mystery, so is the paralysis of the U.S. government in the face of such evidence. Wow. Last December, the New York Times reported on two declassified videos of alleged UFO encounters. In a statement to ABC News, the DOD confirmed the existence of the now-defunct Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program, which investigated unidentified flying objects up until 2012. Wow. There's like four people looking at video going, mm, I don't know. Is that, an, is that a flying saucer? What, that what was is. that? What was that? But when you listen to the pilots... Yeah, the videos. They're like, whoa! Yeah, and these are people that fly jets. Yeah, they, they're not. They're not. You they're know, used to surprised easily. Watching the speed of the object is what caused them to, you know, react the way they did. Like, holy cow, that's not something we've built, no. you know. So, should we investigate or just go? Eh, what are you going to uh, do? Yeah. How do you investigate it? You you get two guys in black suits but, to show up. Right. Really? And start investigating. Men in black. Men in black. Maybe a couple of hosts from one of these random history uh, yes. history network shows that are and investigating UFOs. And have one UFOs. of those memory reverser things. Okay. There you go. That's what I we have do. ourselves a commission. The flashy Why? thing, as the Will flashy. Smith called it in the movie. Yeah, the flashy Did thing. Did you flashy thing in me? <laughs> <laughs> Finally, to live your best, happiest life, pack up and head to either California or the Dakotas. Wallet Hub did a uh, survey based on the cities it found are the happiest. Really? So the Golden State claimed four cities in the top ten, North and South Dakota taking a total of three. The site looked at more than 180 cities across three main metrics, emotional and physical well-being, jobs and income, and community and environment. Wow. The top ten cities, along with their happiness ratings on a 100-point uh, scale. What are they? 100 is the maximum happiness. Uh, tops is Fremont, California. Really? Number one for community and environment. How cool. They got a 79 out of 100. Seems kind of low. That's what I'm thinking. To be number one. Yeah, you're the tops and you got the 79.9. So well, the rest 80. of us must be just pathetically low. Bismarck, North Dakota. Really? At 78. Number one in income and employment. Yeah. I'm thinking a lot of fracking. Thank you. You're welcome. San Jose, California. Really? 76. Do you know the way to San Jose? Number one for emotional and physical well-being. There you go. In San Jose. San Jose. No one can afford a house in San Jose. You can't afford to live there. You make a lot of money, but your apartment's really expensive. And you're emotionally good. But yeah, life's good. Apparently. The rest of uh, Pearl City, Hawaii, Plano, Texas, Fargo, North Dakota. By the way, Pearl City, Hawaii. Yeah. Which has recovered from one of the worst events in the history of mm. the United States. 
uh, continuing on Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Irvine, California, Huntington Beach, and Grand oh, I Prairie. I love Huntington Beach. Irvine Grand is Prairie. great, and Huntington Beach is great. But again, money, money, money. Yeah. So apparently, the, the, this is actually interesting because it's California, a lot of the beach areas, it sounds like. Yep. And um, north, sa- north and South north Dakota. North and South Dakota. So it, right. it doesn't matter if you're inland with fracking abilities or on the coast with... You know, so basically, spills. money equals happiness. Does it? Oh wow! I that's what that, we just heard. That's the conclusion. Yeah. Is that is that the end result there, Matt? Do Huntington you see Beach, that? San Jose, Irvine, California. San Jose, by the way. I mean, that's mm. this is amazing. Mm. There's some good. Yeah, there's some great. I mean, but, I, in fact, I've been to three of those in the last year. But wouldn't you think maybe on a scale of 100 to get to your happiest city is at 80 percent? Yeah, something instead of a hundred percent. I mean, it, maybe it's kind of a maybe the, the scale. Maybe the problem with this study is that the scale's a little off. Hmm. I think that we wouldn't be hitting at eighty percent. We, the best cities you'd think would be like in the nineties. Okay, I mean, if you're going old school, or, or or are they holding on to the integrity of the scale? And this is showing that eighty percent. Maybe there's some some things to work on. Yeah, to make your city happier. I don't know. This is why I. Hated statistics. Or do you question Wallet Hub and everything they do? Because yes. they're the ones that did the study. Yeah. Oh, the monkey survey monkey didn't do it? No, no, no. Those are only for like political polls. I, uh, that I see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I got a question for you because I know we talk about it all the time on the show. Mm. How much exercise does one really need? Hmm. Uh, I saw a place opening around. Close to my house that yeah. uh, says 15 minutes once a week. What? Really? That's it? That's what they said. Well, I don't at really their believe place. it. Yeah, go to their place. Because they'll do, do mega, yeah. Their workout 15 minutes once a week. That's like the electroshock therapy, though, that they put on your abs. Mm. Yeah. Here's basically uh, the article um, is How Much Exercise Do I Really Need by Beth Squarecki from Vitals. Hmm. Uh, it's a life hacker organization from yes. Life Hacker. Um, but uh, zero is obviously not enough. If you're preparing for a marathon, you're probably doing too much mm. exercise. Mm-hmm. So somewhere in between, there's this happy medium. Fortunately, all the major public health organizations are in agreement. The World Health Organization. Who? Who? The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the American Heart Association are all on board with the following guidelines for aerobic exercise. Four to five times a week. Wait a minute. You just said we need to do between zero and preparing for a marathon? That's still too much. 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity exercise like walking. So 30 minutes a day. Ideally broken up to 30 minutes per day over five days. Yeah. Hmm. 75 minutes per week of vigorous exercise like running, ideally in uh, three 25-minute chunks. Hmm. It only counts if you do 10 minutes or more in each session, and you should spread your sessions throughout the week so you can't take a single 90-minute spinning class and figure you're done. Mm. So you need five moderate-intensity workouts. Is that right? Or three 25-minute vigorous workouts. Hmm. The thing that you said that I like the most is the resting period. Yeah. In between the you know rigorous exercise. And I don't think you need to do both, do you? In fact, I try to just focus on the resting portion of that. Mm. Yeah. That's yeah. maybe the problem. 
don't, don't they want, want you to, to focus on the moderate to heavy, not heavy, but moderate exercise, right? Yeah. So you, it sounds like really what you need is the mix of both. You need you need some some sort of cross training of well, some you kind. Need, you need to you need to get the heart really pumping hmm. for about seventy five minutes a week. Now, what if I'm resting hmm. while I'm watching somebody else do rigorous exercise? No, Ooh, you know point. what? Let me let me do it. That's for a mix. You. That's I'm a going mix to of both. You, if you would just walk more, like like I used to, back in the day. And then you remember how you – when you go home and you sit in your lazy boy and then you think, hey, I want nachos. Mm. And then you remember how your wife brings you a plate of nachos and then she keeps it just out of your grasp. And you fight <laughs> to get that plate of nachos and your heart rate starts racing for a couple minutes. You need to do that 75 times a week. See, the fallacy, fallacy of that hypothetical, uh, my wife cannot stomach nachos. In fact, uh. when I pull out the nacho fixings, she just – audibly starts to gag does she really? or she'll leave the room because oh, I, I think the jalapenos make her cry you call it the fixings she's like the he's, fixings. he's it's doing really, it again it's just really the not the jar of cheese and the jalapenos no, this one came in a can okay so mm. just know that feeling where your heart's beating inside of your chest and you can actually feel it happening you need to do that 75 times a week so that's not a heart attack no Plus another you know, 150 minutes or so. You know, I do the step bet. I get my steps in every day. How many steps are you taking a day now? Uh, between 7,300 and 9,300. I really just go for the bare minimum. So, hmm. Well, 9,300 steps is a good day, really, right? Yeah. I only have to do two of those days a week. I mean, you're not. Those are called stretch days. He's just kind of like meandering. I wouldn't even call them steps. Yeah. I'd call them like... Shuffles? Shuffles. Yeah. Leg drags. Yeah. So he's not really getting anything out of doing that kind of work. Oh, there will be money out of it if I can finish off this week. We're thinking like physical benefits. Oh, I see. Well, and the other thing, you you sit in your chair for three straight hours and just keep wiggling your arm, pretending like that's a step. That is not true. So that is those a, aren't real steps. Steps would actually need to involve your leg. That is a patented lie. Really? Patented? Patent pending? It's patent pending, but it's patented. Whatever. Okay. Hey, straight ahead. Stay calm in any situation. We're going to teach you how to manage your emotion, folks. David Lieberman will be joining us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, have you ever been angry? You know, popped off, gone, gone a little, uh, gone a little berserk. Well, if you haven't, then you are lying because everyone has. Anger has held a place in our society since the beginning of time. It tends to control many of us uh, to a greater degree and a powerful and very destructive force um, in some of our, our relationships and the things that we matter that matter most to us. When this uh, when anger creeps in, we lose some of our we lose we lose a little bit of ourself. Then we feel shame. We feel guilt. 
it's it's an ugly road that we we go down and who better to help us to talk about it than Dr. David Lieberman who has a book Never Get Angry Again and today he's here to give us some tricks and some tips on how to put anger on the back burner. David Lieberman, thank you for being with us. It is my pleasure. Thank you, Matt. This is uh this is a big deal, right? People I've I've just seen in my own life where I'm most disappointed in myself, where I'm most um, frustrated is when I lose it. Yes, yes, I would agree. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. As you know, I've written a number of books. Yeah. And I found that, you know, anger is something that certainly is universal. And when we become angry, we just, it ends up, we sort of double down sometimes. We end up feeling guilty. And then we become more angry. We take it out on other people around us. And it is probably one of the most destructive emotions. And the amazing thing in doing the research is that it doesn't take decades and decades and decades in order to get it under control. Anger is something that you can not just win the battle of over time, but you can find yourself much more in control of yourself even after just a couple of hours of practicing the techniques. Now, okay, how do we do this? Because this is the age-old you know, issue, fight and flight, right? Uh, I'm assuming mm-hmm. a lot of that chemistry gets involved. And you're saying we, we as humans have the power to reverse that. That's right. That's right. And you raise the exact point, and it goes to the reason why the book has gotten so much attention, is because you can count to 10 all you want. You could punch a pillow. You can visualize. visualize. That's only going to take you so far. If you go to the core of your anger and you understand at the foundation why you're becoming angry and how really anger is just an illusion of control, it sort of unwinds itself. So as you aptly say, is that if you were to see a bear in the forest, you would have that fight or flight response. The body would produce a number of chemicals, neurotransmitters, hormones, adrenaline, cortisol, and so on, and you'd sort of ready yourself for battle. When we become angry, it's because we are to some extent in emotional pain or we feel fear, which is a type of pain. And so the body believes that it is in danger. It's vulnerable. It, we, emotionally, we feel as if we are threatened. And when you understand that the fact that this person is disrespectful to me, the fact that this person doesn't like me, doesn't make me less, I am not worth less because you can't love me or accept me, it just almost instantly dissolves that anger because the fear that it was predicated on no longer exists. Ah. So how do, um, and I, I guess you see this, I see it with relationships and marriage, but yeah. we see it just in the community with, I just saw it on a chat board with people responding to somebody's video. And so I guess what you're saying is anytime we're feeling this anger, it's because of fear or uh, this, or like um, an emotional pain that we may be having, and it's it's usually not this life-threatening situation, hardly if ever. That's right. That's right. And certainly, we could say that there are justifiable times to become angry. Yeah, right. The problem is, is that if you assume that you may be justified in your anger, you're going to lose perspective in that moment, and you're going to say, this is the time for me to become angry. So if you take it off the table as a response, you may be wrong 1% of the time, but you'd be right 99% of the time, rather than if you say, you know what, if my anger is justified, then I'm going to become angry. Because in that moment, you lose perspective. And that's really what emotional health comes down to. Being sane means that I see reality clearly. 
And the degree to which my ego blocks perspective, I don't see the situation clearly. I just feel threatened. So if you're able to take your ego out of the way, which is what we show, then you are, there's nothing to injure. There's nothing to get harmed because I realize how you treat me is a reflection of your own self-worth and has zero to do with me. But if I feel in pain because you're disrespectful, you cut me off, you don't like my ideology, my philosophy, then of course I'm going to react with anger. Yeah. No, I just saw this with a client recently, and it's almost like we we need to keep the story alive that the other's making me angry, or I'm going to have to go in and deal with the fact that I feel insecure about me. That's oh, you just hit on it, and that's exactly what it is. Is that we keep this narrative alive, and rather than acknowledge, and but there's nothing wrong with saying that I'm in relationship with somebody who I love or who I you know have respect for, who has done something, and I feel pain. That's okay. That's healthy. We're not talking about suppressing it or ignoring it. You've done something to me. Maybe I'm delayed in traffic. Maybe my boss yelled at me, whatever it is. It's okay to acknowledge the pain. But the reality is, if you want to stay in truth, what part of me is really in pain? Is it the real me, my soul, or is it my ego, the fake me? Because the ego only exists to compensate for my own feelings of guilt, inferiority, and shame. It's sort of a facade. But if I realize that it's just my feeling that I'm not being loved and accepted, and it's coming from a place of fear, all the anger simply dissolves. Yeah. No, that's huge. Okay. Now, uh, again, we're speaking with Dr. David uh, Lieberman, who is a nationally recognized leader in the field of human behavior, creator of neurodynamic analysis, which is a revolutionary short-term therapy. He is also a sought-after speaker, a lecturer. He's written many books and is the author of some other books, including Make Peace with Anyone and How to Change Anybody. He lives in New Jersey. Talk to us, David. How do we actually start to... Uh, how do we start to turn it off then? How do, we, how do we start to train ourselves to understand that it's not about them, it's, it's about my fear, it's about my emotional pain? Excellent. So first is, if we want to unwind from the anger, we have to unwind from the fear. And if we understand the basis of fear is my belief that emotionally I'm not going to be accepted or loved, then our homework begins with accepting ourselves. Because the thing, Matt, is, is that the degree to which you accept you, you love you, you respect you, you don't need other people to love, respect you, and accept you. Now, it doesn't mean you don't want it, but if they refuse to do it because of their limitations, you're not going to make it about you. But if you don't accept, as, you know, Carl Jung, the eminent psychologist, yeah. once wrote, he said, any aspect of your personality that you don't love, it's going to become hostile to you. Meaning that whatever part of ourselves that we're not willing to accept and acknowledge and own, that whenever you come close to that, that's when my ego is going to engage and I'm going to become sensitive. That's going to lead to fear and anger. But if I fully accept me, I love me unconditionally, doesn't mean that I don't work on myself, doesn't mean I approve everything I do, doesn't mean that I don't have my stuff. It does mean that who I am right here, right now is good. I'm a good person. And, if, and I'm, when I'm able to really own that and love me, and we sort of walk people through the process of that very quickly, is that I can see that when you treat me disrespectfully or rudely or something doesn't go my way, that it is a reflection of your own self-worth. 
because at the end of the day, it's how we treat other people. It's based on how we feel about ourselves. Mm -hmm. So if you truly love yourself, you can give love. If you don't have it, what do you have to give? But if I'm in my own pain because of my insecurities, I can't see your stuff. I can't see past my own ego. But if I fully accept me and we're in a conversation or disagreement and you're being rude or disrespectful, then I can see your pain. Instantly that gives me empathy and a connection rather than anger. Mm. And then all of a sudden you're more in integrity with yourself. Now, now yeah, you're aligned. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You've got complete authenticity because it's okay to say, you know what, you're treating me disrespectfully. I don't like that. But I also realize, and it's not about fighting against your nature saying, okay, I'm going to take deep breath. That stuff is, is, you know, last, last, last resort. You don't have to do that. If you're not in pain, all you have is complete empathy. And your singular thought is how much pain must this person be in to treat somebody as wonderful as me like this? Yeah. Wow. Is it... Um... I mean, just even because I did go through this recently with a client, and I saw, and they're such good people, and they're really they're, the battle is always it seems like with ourselves. It's our own fears, it's our yeah. own insecurities. Um, how do you? Because it's so much easier for kind of just the natural minded of us and just the egoic of us in when we're in our ego to to put the problem outside of us. It's that is the, how the ego protects itself, right, is by making everyone else the cause of my pain. Sure. That's the ego's favorite mechanism is to blame, not take responsibility. It'll do anything other than accept responsibility because accepting responsibility is painful. It is painful, but pain isn't the problem. Suffering is, yeah. and suffering is the consequence of not accepting responsibility. Right. Yeah, and then, and then it, it just digs you into a deeper hole because That's even right. when you know – even if you got away with blaming someone else for what they did that caused you so much of the pain, you still know subconsciously deep down inside in your soul that it's not them. It's you. You still That's have right. the fear. That's right. That's right. It never goes away unless you go to the root. And again, one of the reasons why the book has gotten so much attention is because it focuses on how to uproot anger. You know, you pull the weeds up from the root. You don't have to keep on spraying every time. So you find yourself no longer with these constant battles. It doesn't mean sometimes things don't irritate you or frustrate you, but you're able to take 90% of life's daily frustrations right off the table. You live in an entirely different world. Do you have... Um, in the book, I mean, it seems like this is almost – it's therapeutic in nature, but you'd almost need to sit with somebody to do this. Or can you really do it in your own head without playing your own head games? Ah, a, a very apt question. Yes, you can. One of the most difficult things, as you rightly point out, is self-awareness because the healthier we are, the more clearly we see reality. In order to see reality clearly, that means I've got to see myself clearly. In other words, if I'm not willing to accept me, I've got to distort the world around me. Because if I'm not the problem, then you're, you might become the problem. Yeah. So self-awareness is integral, which is why a lot of the book focuses on how to really look in that mirror and be honest with yourself. And to say that it's, it's easy would be inaccurate. To say that it is so liberating and empowering would be true. Because at the core of a lot of our stuff is childhood. Because children, by definition, are egocentric, meaning that how we're treated by our parents or caregivers growing up 
becomes our identity because the child will think to themselves, if my mother treats me this way, my father does this to me, then that must be because of my own self-worth. So we transition into adulthood with this degree of shame, with this dented self-image. And when you're able to liberate yourself from that in hours, you can undo decades and decades of stuff that you've been walking around with unnecessarily. Mm. Do you, um, is there, is there ways that we can do this for others? Uh, because if somebody's caught in their story and I'm sitting there even, you know, altruistically, lovingly trying to help them see that the fear is really theirs inside of them, all that's going to do is stir their anger more. Is there something I can do as an individual to help another to, to get out of ego? For sure. You know, I was on the Today Show some time ago. I was speaking about a different book and a similar question came up. And we're talking about making peace in relationships. And, you know, it was actually uh, King Solomon, the wisest of men, who said that words spoken from the heart are heard from the heart, meaning that if the person knows that you genuinely care about them, they're going to listen to you. And there's a saying in sales, people don't care what you know till they know that you care. So if you have the relationship with that person where they truly honestly know that you love them, you care about them, you're not doing this because you're a pain and annoyed and frustrated, you want them to be better, to be healthier, to be more whole, then you can begin to help them. Hmm. But unless they, which is why, you know, I always encourage people when you want to help everyone, whether it's an addiction, whether it is a nasty habit, whether it's a blind spot in their lives, make sure the relationship is solid because you know there are people in your life, Matt, who you can say anything to, they'll hear it the right way. There are other people you can't say hello to without hearing it the wrong way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do do you see, um, David, that uh, this can be like, how do we put it? Um, Could this be a driver? Could this be, do you think, a cause of anxiety and depression? Sure. Because, I mean, we we always just kind of like to throw this idea that it's a chemical problem. And if we just give chemicals, then we'd fix that. But it seems like really this seems like such a deeper root cause of a lot of our anxiety, a lot of our fear, a lot of our depression. It is, certainly. And look, I work with a lot of patients who have anxiety and anger issues, and the two are interwoven because, as we spoke about at the beginning, is that anger is built on the foundation of fear. So if you dissolve the fear, then you dissolve the anger. And when you become angry, it ends up creating sort of physiological domino effect where you become more anxious because the body seeks to uh, reconcile your emotional state and say, wow, I'm really angry. There must be something to become angry about. And physiologically speaking, it increases blood pressure and creates a whole chain of, of uh, uh, physiological and chemical responses. So certainly getting our anger under control. And also, when you're able to move through the day knowing that you're not going to be set off by a car that cuts you off, you're not going to fly into a rage or lose half your day because somebody bumped into you into the road. You have such a sense of knowing invincibility and a new sense of calm. And I'm not going to say you're anxiety-free, but a lot of the nonsense that you used to worry about, it simply comes right off the table. Mm. So powerful. Um, Again, we're speaking with David Lieberman, who is talking to us right now about his book, Never Get Angry Again. He's the author of many other books. Um, David, when you look at this, too, is, I mean, I guess as we start to get better and better at it, uh, I mean, a lot of times people are like, okay, count to 10, take deep breaths, you know, go take a timeout. They've got all these techniques 
to kind of, I guess, to remove emotion. But is, you're saying there's a big difference between removing the physiological chemistry emotion versus the root thought of it that's driving the emotion. That's right. That's right. So let's take a metaphor that we touched on before. Let's say you walk in the forest and you see a bear. Now, your physiological uh, response is going to kick in, that fight-or-flight response, and it's going to set up a chain reaction with uh, a, a myriad of neurotransmitters and hormones that are going to put you into that mode to be able to defend yourself. But if I tell you ahead of time, I said, Matt, you're going to see something that looks like a bear, but understand, just a little kid, he's dressing up. Trust me, nothing to worry about. You're going to see it, and you're going to laugh. Right. So yeah. and it's the same thing here. So if you, you see a bear and you think it's real, then you've got to calm yourself down, take deep breaths, visualize, punch a pillow, do what you can in order to remind yourself that you're safe. But if you already know that you're safe and you see what appears to be a bear, but you know it's not a threat, then you never have to fight against your own nature. So once again. Your spouse is disrespectful, your kids don't listen, your boss yells at you, life doesn't go your way, spill your coffee, whatever it is. If you know honestly and own fully, it's not a threat, you laugh. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it is about it's, it's about what you know. And, and I guess the pre-work you do in being able to set yourself in that space w- will prepare you to handle probably any intervention or any moment where you need this intervention. That's right. It could be little things. It could be big things. And the wider your perspective, the healthier you come into the situation, the easier it is to handle. But once you already come in, when we know it's in our own lives, when you're upset about one thing, it's easier to get upset about the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. But when you enter a situation, whether it's a little thing or a big thing, with the widest perspective possible and your ego's out of the way, you're able to deal with it not just so much better and feel better about how you deal with it, but you can be more effective. Because, look, no one ever walked away from a conversation and said, I wish I would have gotten angrier. I would have been able to handle myself so much better. Yeah. You know, it just clouds our ability to think clearly and act responsibly. Now, as we wrap up, what would you say, David, if there's one thing, what is the number one thing we could all do today that would start, I mean, other than, of course, getting the book, Never Get Angry Again, what would be the number one thing we could do today to start, you know, kind of uh, making us more emotionally resilient? Terrific. Recognize that we don't run the world and that you can expect that things are not going to go your way. So you can either be surprised by it or you can know that you are able to deal with whatever comes your way because here's the equation is that desire minus reality equals pain. But if I adjust my expectations, then I know that there are going to be people that are rude today. There are going to be people that are impolite. Things are not going to go my way. And it's okay. It's got nothing to do with me. So the biggest takeaway here is how somebody treats me is a reflection of their self-worth and speaks volumes of their character and their emotional health and has nothing to do with me. Mm, beautiful stuff. Dr. David Lieberman's his name. Again, uh, so many wonderful things we can learn from him. The name of the book is um, Never Get Angry Again, as well as some other books he has, Make Peace with Anyone and How to Change Anybody. He lives in New Jersey. Very basic um, uh, principles, really, but uh, not ones that we, we really like to look at, about fear, about anger, and about our ability to control it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a little break, come back, do a coach's corner, doing what we we can to help you uh, have healthier, more loving relationships. And I realize. 
Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. You know, when we think about our relationships and our anger, our frustration with others, so many times it is, it really, I mean, most of the time, I would even dare say, it's not about what we're making it about. There's the smoke and the fire. There's certain things that we make the fight about, what your partner did, what your partner said, how rude that was. But deep down, there's probably something else going on where it, it's actually just – it's vibrating. Their their act, their discouraging, hurtful act really vibrates on something that you're fearful about, that you are worried about deep down, something that you feel like you can't control, something you may not like about yourself. Um, this is why so many times – the idea of a partner um, looking at, at something on the internet that that is not part of our value system, looking at pornography, might totally rock the core of their other of their partner because that also rocks their insecurity, their own dislike about their own body, their own frustrations, their own fears, their own fear that you know this could dissolve the family or that your partner isn't as safe as you thought they were, and that generates fear. And when we have those fears. It's just too easy to then wrap your fear and your insecurity around your partner's mistakes, around your partner's problem. But in the end, um, this is still your problem because this is – I was asking a couple recently. So if we were able to you know, guarantee this problem would never happen again, you could – I could wholeheartedly 100 percent prove to you, show you, and, and validate that your partner will never have this problem ever again. Would this eliminate all of your concerns? And the answer is no, it wouldn't. Because we, by me fixing one partner's problem or helping them work on their habit or their addiction or their whatever, their rude behavior, it's not going to change the other partner. And it's, I know it's frustrating to know that, well, they're the one that hurt you. They're the one that violated the contract in your marriage. They're the one that made the mistake. How am I why do I have to pay for their mistake? You don't have to pay for their mistake. You have to pay for your uh response and your insecurity, your fears that are playing on this mistake and that are that are being that are being impacted by this mistake. This is always about us becoming our best selves, right? This is about us becoming healthier, loving, more caring, more strong in you know, integrated whole people. It's not about my partner becoming that. And almost inevitably, when I see one partner that creates a problem in a marriage, that problem amazingly seems to perfectly be the problem that the other partner needs to fix as well, their insecurity. When I see a couple, a partner that hides money and spends money and has a, let's say, a a gambling habit, I generally will immediately see another partner that has other insecurities about money or, you know, trust in people. And it just becomes like the perfect combination, the perfect storm. And I see that all the time. Whenever I see a spender, I generally see somebody who's a saver that's trying to save in order to control, to to make sure they never have a problem in their life. Whenever I see um, a, a person that generally... Uh, 
wants more touch in the marriage or the relationship. I have another one that might uh, be averse to touch because of a past history. And then those two things play on each other. When I see one that is always drawn to religion, almost inevitably I'll see that they're married to a partner that many times pulls the opposite direction of that. It's human behavior. It's human dynamic. And um, instead of trying to blame our partner for all of our problems, what if we could just start to mitigate, eliminate, and become a stronger individual? Now, by the way, it doesn't mean we have to stay with people that are hurting us or making life difficult for us, but then you can go forward and make the decision of how you're going to handle it with your highest self, with your with your highest sense of integrity intact, instead of just being angry and, you know, a feverish clod, you know? Basic stuff. Anyway, doing what we can to help you uh, get the tools, the information you need to live a healthier, happier life. This is The Matt Townsend Show. It's now time for some empty news with Jeffrey Liam Simpson. When you've cleaned your home or you've made some renovations, what are some of the weirdest things that you've found? Uh, you always find stuff under the fridge. There's always the sock. Yeah. That one sock we were looking for. Yeah, you find stuff under the fridge or you just – you know what I find? I find um, – you always find change. Yeah. But it's like, oh, I forgot I even had that. Like, Oh, yeah. I used to have these magnets I would play with, and mm-hmm. I could not find them for the life of me. Right. And about five years later, we found them. How about a bazooka? Wow. Never found a bazooka. <laughs> I found a piece of bazooka once. There's a couple in Virginia who is doing some renovations. They knocked down a wall, and they found an old bazooka, uh, a bazooka round in the wall of the home. Are you serious? The homeowner said it was in the wall in the back of the garage area. The couple immediately called the fire department and bomb squad. They have lived there about a year and a half. Based on the condition of the or, uh, of the ordinance, the bomb squad seemed uh, or deemed it completely safe. There were no injuries. Wow. Yeah. A bazooka. Now, what's the weirdest thing you've ever found in your lunchbox? Uh, kale. Mm. Are you the parent that sends kale with your kids, or did you send kale? Yeah, I always send kale with my kids because I don't want to eat it. So I'm like, I'll just give it to the kids. And then they come home mad. Yeah, I mean, there is a moment when you're a kid, when you open up that lunchbox or that bag, and you're like, oh, <laughs> I'm definitely not eating this. My wife's trying to kill me. Yeah. Speaking of trying to kill you. Yes. Uh, how about finding a snake in a lunchbox? Not good. Not that there was malicious intent. Yeah. There just happened to be a snake in a lunchbox in Australia. Uh. And believe it or not, and I think you know where this is going, uh, they have already made a movie about this. No way. It's different from all the other Sam Jackson movies, though. Oh. And here's why. Samuel L. Jackson has fought snakes in ten films. This summer, we're taking you back to where it all started. Grade school. Hey, Billy, I've got a chocolate pudding in my lunch today. Want to trade? Hmm. Let's see what Mama packed for me. I got potato chips, egg salad, baby carrots, and what's in this bag? It's a snake! I have had it with these slithery snakes in my Scooby-Doo lunchbox! Samuel L. Jackson in Snakes in a Lunchbox. 
They messed with the wrong grade schooler. <laughs> <laughs>